0: Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy with your host, Paul Frederick. Welcome friends and fellows, daemons to another episode of Damonosophy. Tonight, Dr. Stephen Flowers returns to the show to discuss his latest work from Inner Traditions, Magian Tarak, The Origins of the Tarot in the Mithraic and Hermetic Traditions.
1: Dr. Flowers,
0: welcome to the show again.
1: Paul, well, I'm glad to be back. Glad to make it through to uh, see you again or hear you again.
0: Yes, likewise. Uh-huh. Um, so, Tell us about the book. How, how did you discover the information that is the
1: basis for
0: your research in this book?
1: Well, I had uh, so I was studying runology, uh, of course, at the university, and uh, a figure, uh, a very interesting individual, a Swedish scholar by the name of Sigurd Agrell. Had developed in the 1920s and 30s uh, a uh, theory about the runes which is called the Usart theory that the uh, the runes actually began with the U rune rather than the F rune which is a thoroughly discredited idea among runologists but he wrote a lot of voluminous uh, material about various things and uh, so he did do a lot of homework and background and so forth. And he, one of his uh, specialties, one of the things he looked into was the idea of numerology, uh, gematria, if you will, and uh, in connection with Greek letters, and then the runes and the influence of them and then the whole Mithraic cult, which he saw as uh, formative in the uh, runic tradition. And so I... course I investigated his works and so forth and came across uh, in uh, Germany actually when I was uh, doing research there uh, a book by him which was about the Tarot it was in German uh, and uh, about the Tarot and the runes and Mithraism and that sort of thing and so I got a copy of that book and started I read it and researched in it and so forth. And so that was the beginning of it. But I saw, well, his he's, some of his theories are wrong, but some of his theories are uh, spot on or very interesting. And he was a very learned person and he's written a lot of things on a lot of interesting subjects. And so that's where it started. And, and then my interest in uh, Persian, uh, Iranian spirituality and things of that nature uh, dovetailed in here. And I wrote about 2005 a first edition of this book, and then uh, subsequently I learned much more about Iranian traditions and uh, history and religion. And so this book, this edition, is uh, definitely much more, uh, it's expanded and much more accurate in its depiction of uh, Iranian background uh, information and such things like that. Uh, so, One of the things about Mithraism is it's widely thought by many scholars. Originally it was thought to be, well, this is Persian religion in the Roman Empire. Uh, like Franz Cumont and people like that believe that sort of thing. And then there was a backlash against that, the way scholarship works uh, in a bad way. It's like, well, we're going to disprove that. So this is just a Roman invention, completely Roman thing. Uh, It has nothing to do with Persian uh, ideas at all. It's just, you know, showmanship or something, uh, pretending to be that. But then, and besides that, we'd have no idea about this Mithra cult of Mithra and things like that in Iran. But as we subsequently, Iranian studies got more detailed and more knowledgeable, there was a whole treasure trove of things found at Persepolis that showed this martial Mithraic cult that was active in uh, Iran and among the Persians, Iranians, and so forth. And of course, they're client peoples everywhere throughout their empire. And uh, this is what uh, uh, was imported. And of course, transformed as Roman people always do. They always took everything they got a hold of and Romanized it and created a, their own version of it. And that's what happened. But, uh, it does have a lot of interesting things to, uh, to recommend itself uh, as far as the whole Mediterranean Mithraic idea of, of, of sort of synthesizing uh, ideas from all kinds of places in the world throughout the Roman Empire and sort of funneling them together. What's fascinating about the Mithraic Cult is it's kind of like a proto-Freemasonry, and I don't mean just the rituals that are used, but rather also the purpose behind it, and that is one of the main purposes, a social purpose, which was that within the order, all the men, and it was mostly all men who were members, not exclusively as formerly thought, but almost exclusively, um, all the men were uh, ranked according to their initiatory grades, not according to their uh, mundane levels of uh, socioeconomic status. So that a slave, there were slaves who were, of course half the people in the empire were slaves, there were slaves who were masters of these Mithraia. They were the highest initiate in the group. And so an emperor or a patrician guard or whatever might come into the order and be inferior to and put in an inferior position and have to go through that process to a slave. Mm -hmm. And so it was this idea that all men are brothers in the order and they're all... uh, ranked according to their initiatory grade within the order without respect to their socioeconomic status outside the order. So that was very impactful in uh, cementing relationships and making a socioeconomic kind of new fabric and revolutionary uh, new thing within the empire. Of course the Christians completely destroyed the the uh, the order and killed them everyone and then just covered up the the temples and that sort of thing which uh, has been a, one of the good things about that process was that since they buried the temples they were just and uh, they were left unmolested and now archaeologists have dug them all up and they're, and they're there to be uh, discovered. One of them was discovered in London after the Blitz. You know, it was underground there and people didn't even know it was there. Mm. But, uh, so would you say so uh, the,
0: Mithraism then would you say it's, it's sort of a bridge between the uh, more ancient Iranian-Persian uh, mythological you know, symbolism is a bridge between that and the modern Torah?
1: Yeah, so I'm the, definitely. Uh, well, into the into the ancient world, and into, of course, the world of the Tarot, which is what we're sort of the book's about. Uh, experts and uh, scholars and historians of the Tarot will tell you that there is no indication that the Tarot existed before the mid fourteen hundreds, thereabouts, at the earliest. So it's the Italian Renaissance. Uh, creation, so uh, so, uh, one might say. But then you start to dig a little bit deeper and say, well, where did this system come from? It's obviously not uh, an invention based on known or easily discoverable uh, ideas within Neoplatonism or something like that, uh, so that it's been mysterious that way. But if you uh, say, Well where where one of the peoples that were saying, so these people have something to do with the tarot and that's those darn gypsies. Now, that's a word that is, of course, it's a pejorative term, and uh, people don't like to use that word in relation to the people, uh, the Romani people, that, uh, that are referred to with that word gypsy. Now, where did that word gypsy come from? It means Egyptian, right? And why was that? Well, they saw these kind of darker-skinned people and uh, who were involved with, well, music, magic. Uh, they were nomadic people wandering about the countryside. Very weird people. So the you know Christian people thought, and so they just said, well, they're Gypsies. Well, like in the from everything these people knew about history or or ethnography had to be drawn from the Bible because that was about all anybody knew anything about, including educated people. Mm -hmm. And so there were certain evil countries, of course, evil lands in from the Old Testament. Those being places like Egypt, like Babylon, like Canaan, and so forth. And so these are people, they're involved with magic, like when Moses had a magical duel with Pharaoh and his priests and all that. And so they're magicians. So they're connected to to the tarot, this weird system of, of cards and things that they might have used for divination or other things. Now, who were the Romani people really? Well, they are a people from northern India at the border of Iran or Persia and uh, and India, up in the Punjab region there. And they speak or spoke, uh, when they spoke their own languages, a language that's just related to Hindi. It's an Indo-European language from the Indian subcontinent. And there's a story in the Shah Namah, uh, the Persian Epic poem of the kings of uh, Persia uh, that was written in the 1200s by uh, Fir Gossi, the great Persian poet. Now, he tells a story in there about a Shah, an emperor of Iran who I'd heard about these people in India who were musicians and entertainers. And uh, they were skilled at that. And he said, well, the people of Iran and of my empire, uh, the poor people do not have access like we in the court to music and to entertainment. So I am going to bring these people into the empire and and give them an ox and seed to plant so they can farm and uh, do do, do agricultural work for you on the with the uh, stipulation that they provide entertainment to the poor of the empire, of the Persian empire. But then these people, according to the story, uh, ate their ox and, uh, and, and, and and just wandered the seed and didn't plant anything and did all sorts of mischief and terrible things. And so he drove them out of the empire uh, and they sent them west, you know, into Rome, into the Roman territory. And that's how they transitioned. Now, but they spent a lot of time in Iran. They were already sort of this kind of uh, uh, Hindi kind of culture, and so. But this is who these people actually are, hmm. and so then we're going to look for if there's any connection to a more. Uh, Eastern. Uh, set of symbols and things like that that might be connected with the tarot with these with these symbols the sort of a series of symbols and so uh, actually I didn't know anything about that story I don't think and uh, didn't say anything about it but uh, I I, saw there's a lot of things in there that I've discovered on my own but where you see this uh, thing making the connection or he, he made these connections with Rome, with the Roman system uh, Latinate system of, of writing and that sort of thing is that this idea of the, at the time of the Mithraism there was uh, they used uh, Greek or Latin and uh, in their inscriptions and things like that so the roman alphabet used 22 letters for divinatory purposes the latin alphabet in classical times had uh, 23 letters total but the Ypsilon, the y character was never used could not be used initially as an initial letter and it was only used in greek borrowings anyway so It was out. So there were only 22 letters for divinatory oracular purposes in the Roman system. And so he uh, took and he said, well, what about these letters and put them in order and then look at certain key words that may match up with the Tarot uh, symbols like for example the A letter, the first one uh, he connects with the uh, with the uh, Egyptian, the most famous bull in uh, and of course there's like kind of runic thing, this bovine that's the most famous bull in the world, it's the Apis bull in in Egypt, right so A, Apis that sort of thing so uh, he, he goes down the row And it's amazing how these things match up with uh, Latin words that go A, B, C, down, down the line, that match up with the tarot order. Not only do they correspond, but they also correspond in order. And that is... The key, I mean, you see a lot of speculation of all kinds in esoteric books or magic books or occult or new age books, wherein people make correspondences between things. But almost always they lack any kind of systematic uh, uh, association. They're just random, one to one, one here, one there, and they that seems similar to that, and so forth. but But in the ancient world, in something that's authentic and created from the, from a traditional ancient world, it's all, you will the key will always be it not only corresponds but corresponds in some kind of pre-established order. And so he showed that that uh, seems to be the case here that these symbols match up to keywords that are answered to the tarot and to the Latin alphabet. But he says also that probably the original association was with the Greek alphabet and that it was 24 symbols uh, and not 22 the twenty the reduction to twenty two was an adaptation by the Romans of an originally Greek system, and there he makes the connection also with the runes and that sort of thing and it's kind of remarkable how also if you do his system do then take the the, the f out of the first res first rune and start with the bovine the urus rune and then go through the same system how well these also seem to match up so it's uh, it's kind of interesting that way and it may be that uh, what's happened there is that there's a medieval or ancient uh, way of encoding systems But it's just a substitution code where you take, uh, they say, well, let's make B, the letter B, we're going to write that for A and C for B and so forth. Just shift them one, and that's the code, right? Mm -hmm. And so that may have been the case that this, the Uthark idea that he had, was just an encoding. And what he noticed when he did this is that when he assigned the new numerical values to the runes, then they uh, came up with the gematria worked out so that they seemed to answer to Mediterranean ideas of symbolic numbers more than they did if he didn't do that. But, you know, that's all speculation, as as is the whole uh, thing. What it is is... uh, so what's fascinating about the book is for people who are really into the tarot to say, here is something new. <laughs> you know, it's not just there are 200 tarot decks out there. There are how many hundreds of books on the subject, but most of them are telling the same or similar stories, depending on whether it's a thelemite or a Golden Dawn or whatever, but it's all basically the same stuff over and over again uh, and uh, so and also it's pretty much rooted in oftentimes a complete modern uh, interpretation, which attaches these 22 symbols to the Hebrew alphabet, which we know when that happened, with the life of slavery in the early part of the of the, eight, of the 19th century, uh, we know that didn't happen, and that there's nothing Kabbalistic, or you know, the Judaic tradition has no uh, clue or interest in that, and all of that sort of thing. And it has nothing to do with Egypt, it has nothing to do with the Kabbalah, until 200 years ago. So if it does, if anything we're looking at for some kind of genuine, archaic, ancient, authentic connection, we have to make a nexus in the Roman world, in the uh, in the Italian Renaissance world, etc., to make these kinds of connections. And Sigurd Agro did a lot of work there and that's what this book is is about. And it gets also into the lining up or looking at uh, the uh Iranian uh Yazatas, the angels or gods and goddesses of the Zoroastrian calendar and system and how those life have been behind the uh the uh, the tarot ultimately. And so, so so, so, what I hope uh, that a true Tarot enthusiast will find something, some de- things in this book, this little book, that uh, are uh, meaningful, eye-opening, and new avenues of exploration. So well, what Agrel did for me, opening a door, and I hope this book will do for people who are enthusiastic about the Tarot, but want to get into it on a more uh, uh, deep down deep down level of uh, of archaic roots you know the archetypes Mm -hmm. the ultimate archetypes of these symbols and uh, of course it uh, liberates it also from the you know Judeo-Christian mythology
0: right And so who are the who are the McGeeans in uh, McGee and Tarak
1: well, um, they are the priests of the Zoroastrian world of the and or of the Iranian world. Even the what we would call Mithraism is perhaps more orthodox in its origins. That's what the Mithraic uh, cult that was found uh, the evidence found in Persepolis shows that it was not what perhaps what people thought that the mithraism was a kind of a, uh, diva worship as far as the Iranians are concerned. And we know that the old religion, the pre Zoroastrian religion continued on you know, among the Iranians. Uh, and, uh, they, the Orthodox Zoroastrians would call them, well, those are diva worshipers, you know, they're devil worshipers. And that, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, uh, Mithra would be one of these. I mean, Mithra is completely uh, Zoroastrianized, and so this is a very positive, good uh, entity. But uh, you know, he is—he's killing a bull, right? That's what the picture of the toroktoni, and that's where uh, Agra points out, says, Well, this image—that's the centerpiece of all. Mithraea of all temples of Mithra, Mithras, uh, you know shows this figure, this Persian guy who's wearing the Phrygian cap, you know this thing that identifies him as a Persian. He is killing a bull, you know with a knife, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they said, well that's not very Zoroastrian. This idea of you know, animal sacrifice is something they don't uh, see as something that's very positive. So he must be some kind of uh you know, unorthodox figure, but of course uh you look at the actual Zoroastrian uh sacred texts and so forth, and there are references to these this, but it's not intended to be uh, uh, actual literal uh, things but rather symbolic occurrences of uh, uh that are not intended to be literal, but there's not actually a bull being killed or anything like that. Uh, And, and of course, uh, I think it's David Ulzani, I think it is, uh, but uh, he wrote The uh, Origins of Mithraism, a book on that, and he uh, points out these, uh, I don't call them astrological symbolism, but it's astral symbolism where Orion is seen or the relationship between Orion and the constellation of Taurus and the pole a pole star shift and all this sort of thing that this uh, we know you know the the uh, the uh, when you say well why did they start to count the years from 2,000 years ago why did they start we call it before and after Christ but the Romans actually Shifted that and made a new calendar at that time, and they weren't doing it for Christian reasons. It was like something astrological or astral happened and they were encouraging this idea that there was a renewal of the world at approximately that time and Christianity just kind of hopped on that thing. So yeah, that's us. That's Christ. That's what's happening, but they had already done that in pagan times. So uh And these these Mithras were promoting that idea that the world is coming into a new age, is coming into a new uh, way of being. And that was what they were trying to do in a practical, political, social way, right? That's what the order was trying to really uh, not only just sit around and chant and wait for something to happen passively but rather we're actually taking measures to make these sorts of things happen which again is a to me is again a very uh, Persian Iranian kind of things you don't just you're not just waiting for something to happen to you but rather your will and your ability to do things is paramount to do things right, to do things good, and so that is uh, that. And then also, the, what are we doing with each individual here who comes into the into the Mithraic uh, brotherhood? And that is, we're going to transform each individual, also renew them, according to this initiatory astral, the ascension through the planets and the spheres of the planets spiritually to transform the individual, but also to transform the world. And uh, so you can see why Christianity was very threatened by this, because these people were actually doing stuff, right? Uh, And the way the whole Judeo-Christian way of thinking is, sit, be good, obey, and wait for God to act right this isn't just christianity but Judaism also that's mm-hmm. why orthodox jews you know uh, oppose the establishment of the state of israel you know they said we, we that's human that's people acting and making this happen we want god to act and mm-hmm. give us back the land by god's hand mm-hmm. you know so so this is like wrong what's happening so but that's not the, the Persian way, if you will. So that's,
0: well, that's so that's interesting. So why do you think? Because um, you always hear with Mithraism that it was like largely soldiers, it was like largely Roman uh-huh. soldiers. So why do you think that? Why do you think that it's said that that is the case? Is that because soldiers, the soldiers of the time, were more interested in this, or they had
1: more, um, well, more
0: bandwidth for it, or?
1: Uh, well, I think that that's well, uh, a little bit wrong. I mean, uh, in the sense that uh, there were a lot of soldiers in the Roman Empire, right? I mean, that's uh, it was a militaristic society. So, of course, there's going to be a lot. A lot of the men are going to be involved in that. But we know from the dedication, we know that the, the these, the, the, the Mithras, were very much like your... Baptist uh, church people, you know, who have make like a bench, right? So this bench was uh, donated by, you know, George and Martha uh, McGillicuddy, right? That kind of stuff on the back of the bench. <laughs> well, that, they have, they have inscriptions in these things that tell about. And that's where we know about slaves and how the you know slaves could earn money and we're not as bad off as uh, slaves are when we think about the American South and that sort of thing. Uh, so the slaves could earn have money and uh, and be intelligent. And of course, a lot of them were tutors in Greek and all kinds of things. And uh, you know, so but there would be inscriptions say this uh, facade or this part of the temple or this whole temple was. Sponsored by so and so, and they give his profession and all that kind of thing. So we know uh, a lot about the sociology of the these groups and these inscriptions that are there. And so we see that they were well, they were tradesmen, trade, trade people, as uh, craftsmen, soldiers, yeah, slaves, some of them, you know, and all kinds of different professions really, and a lot of more foreigners. That's where the uh, the uh, whole and there's a lot of scholarship about Mithraism and Mithra and Odin and all this sort of thing of some kind of influence. There's a, one of the Mithraea uh, along the Rhine has an image of Mithra not killing the bull in the normal way but rather riding after it with a well, on horseback with a spear, you know, like a hose in here. Uh, so that, uh, there's, then they said, well, this is where a lot of German, Germanic, uh, people, of course, they joined the, the Roman army, uh, in droves. That's the, the Roman army became largely Germanized. Half of the guys in it were, were Germans by, you know, the third, fourth century. And then, there. uh, when, uh, uh, the, to, to, you know, in the 3rd century, the emperor, the Roman Emperor Valerian uh, invaded Iran, Persia, and uh, was defeated by Shapur. And uh, the whole army was either killed or taken captive, right, by the whole Roman army, including the emperor, and taken into Iran. And they disappeared. I said, whoa, what happened? You know, they to tell horrible stories about, you know, what the what the Persians did to them. Oh, they did terrible tortures. And that didn't happen because uh, we have carved in stone <laughs> lists of where the people, the Iranian uh, inscriptions that Naqsh uh, Rustam would tell about who these people were, who the Romans were, who, where they were from, and they were like Germans and this, that, and the other. And they were taken to a couple of cities there uh, in, in Mesopotamia, and the, the, Roma, the Romans were, they were put to work uh, as civil engineering projects, and there's, they, some of those still stand today. They're Roman architecture. There's one called, the, you know, the Kaiser Bridge, you know, the Caesar Bridge. It was built by by this guy. Or, you know, people, because all Roman soldiers were also civil engineers, right? They could move their army from place to place, build a fort practically overnight, you know. And bridges and this, that, and the other, that was all part of the, that's where we get to, the admiration of that is responsible for the idea of the Army Corps of Engineers and that sort of thing. Mm. So uh, that's what actually happened to him. And then yeah, the Emperor Valerian lived ten more years uh, there with his men. And they, they were like uh, they were prisoners; they couldn't leave. But at the same time, they were not, you know, mistreated. That was the only thing that. Uh, the uh, I mean that's a kind of a Persian thing that prisoners of war and things like that, if they're honorable people you know are considered to be guests you know you just involuntary guests of mm-hmm. me and uh, so they even in the uh, the hostage crisis in nineteen seventy nine they it referred to the Americans in the they they held captive you know as their guests, mm mm-hmm. you know. So, no, that's really interesting
0: that. because you mentioned you mentioned the Shaw earlier, and that reminded me. I don't know if you noticed today, um, it was trending on Twitter. Former President Jimmy Carter uh, uh-huh. was trending trending about going through brain surgery today, and that made that makes as being a Generation X guy that makes me think of the Shaw. So. Uh-huh. Interesting that you bring that up. So, 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 can, right. you, can you talk a little bit about like the Shah, the modern Shah in 1979, and all the connections that tie in with that?
1: Well, uh, you know, he, the Shah of Iran uh, was, uh, you know, a person who uh, was not necessarily a very nice guy. We'll put it that way. <laughs> but if we uh, look at those times. 1979, the late 70s, etc., and see what this man was uh, opposing, what he was trying to do. He was trying to bring Iran into the modern world. Uh, Many people think that he is on the verge. I think some of his grandchildren have converted to Zoroastrianism. And uh, there's a book uh, called In Search of Zarathustra, I can't remember the author's Mm -hmm. name. But uh, he mentions in there that uh, when they had this big celebration of Mm -hmm. the 2,000 or 2,500 uh, years of Iranian monarchy in 1971, I think it was, I remember that because I was in Germany at the time, and there was a, a going to the foreign language school, which had, like, people from 80 different countries. And one of the people that was there was a, um, a person who worked for the Ministry of Propaganda or whatever for the Shah. And uh, he was a super enthusiast about the whole thing. And we saw news reels. At the movie theater, they still kind of had things like that in Germany at the time. Uh, and uh, you know, where it showed all this pageantry, and this guy was just going ape shit. You know, he was so enthused about it, and uh, so forth. And that's where some of the stuff that I have originally heard about Zoroastrianism and the ancient way and da da da, da you know, it's from this guy. And uh, this person in in search of Zarathustra said when he, when the Shah went up in a ceremonial, in a ritual, went up to the tomb of Cyrus the Great and did some speech or some talk, that half the people there, the Iranians, thought this guy is going to convert to Zoroastrianism right there. Mm -hmm. That's what it was widely thought. But that, wow. that was what was going to happen. But uh, hey, that didn't happen. But that because that would have just precipitated him even more rapid. Because that's what these mullahs you know, hated him for, and were suspicious of him, and that's what really fueled them like mad. You can imagine a world in you know in the Bible Belt if you had some guy. A president or, or a governor or something like that, who was like on the verge of converting to Odinism or something, you know. I mean, how that would uh, engender hatred and opposition to this person. And so yeah. they're like fanatics, uh, out of their mind, fanatics anyway, these. Uh, Muslims, and so uh but that's who, what he was opposed to. These were the people he saw as keeping Iran both backward and you know not coming up you know to the modern world when you know he would see iran is uh, was the great power and the great uh, intellectual and spiritual center of the universe in ancient times and now it's just a islamic backwater right yeah and so he said yeah i want to as a nationalism on the one hand but also modernism on the other and he was opposed by these fanatics and he was rough on them as we have come to learn as we've heard our own politicians have repeatedly told us after 9 11 these people only understand strength Mm -hmm. you cannot argue with them you can only kill them Mm -hmm. I mean that's our own people say that now right Mm -hmm. and he just knew that already from living being one of them being in their midst being intimately involved with these people yeah, you got to be tough on them. You know, I mean, you gotta, they did not understand reason or, or anything. And so he was, yes, uh, I remember at the time, uh, you know, they would say, well, maybe the Shah, he may have 5,000, 5,000, imagine that, 5,000 political prisoners in his dungeons or prisons or whatever. So we got to, you know, and that's fine, Jimmy Carter, I have no sympathy or and no uh, love for Jimmy Carter. He is the, mm-hmm. what I call the focus of all evil in the late mm-hmm. 20th century because he was mm-hmm. weak, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a guy there, Meshav Iran, who was a friend of Israel, an ally of Israel, and an ally and friend, obviously, of the United States and the West and of the modern world. And the, You know, he... And so the world would be so, so much different today. And we knew the Shah was dying. He already had cancer. He was already—he was dead within a year or something of abdicating. We knew yeah. that.
2: Yeah.
1: And his son would have been brought in at least a constitutional monarchy or something like that. So it's kind of weird. And, you know... Uh, you know, kind of suspicious as to the whole turn of events there. But certainly what I, I chalk it all up to is the naivete of a of a weak man, of a weak president who mm-hmm. didn't stand by his friend, didn't stand by the global or the you know, the echo the, 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 the kind of a realpolitik of that. So you're gonna throw away a friend because he seems like a rough customer or a bad dude you know and doesn't seem like a nice guy is that why you're going to do this you have no other reason to pull the rug right. out from under him so uh you lost everything and engendered and, and before 1979 there was no worldwide you know jihadism and that kind of thing these people started funding that stuff so the wor- everything got bad. Everything got much worse. It was a new thing, you know, new yeah. problem in the world that has been, well, been you know. But you know, Machiavelli pointed out. So we have these leaders like they can be bad. People I mean bad individuals they can be rough, they can be crass, they can be cruel, but if they're working for you rather than against you, then you want them. It's better to be feared than loved mm-hmm. you know it's working for the people, for your people, yeah. you know, not against them,
0: yeah. So. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's like I can only imagine that the whole situation there is that you know that whole thing opened up, and I was I was like ten years old at the time. Uh-huh. You know, and we're hearing about all this stuff. You know, they're force- You know, they're giving us propaganda about the Shah of Iran. You know, and it was, I remember it was like not even clear to me back then if he was supposed to be a uh, good guy or a bad guy. And uh-huh. the last time I'd heard about, I, what, there was like, wasn't the Munich, um, the Munich Olympics, and the te- uh-huh. like a terrorism thing that happened, like slightly before that? So the media was starting to drum up all this like terrorism thing over there, and then right. you know the hostage crisis that it, that went on for like a couple of years, and then the Shah left. And you know if you go go back and and, and look at that culture before then. And that book that you mentioned in Search of Zarathustra, I know this, this is, it has lots of good information about this. It's like women, you know, women are running around in dresses, smoking cigarettes, you know, their hair down. And then after that, after that regime is over, that's when it became the Dark Ages. They regressed back to, like, the Dark Ages. Sure. And at, at that time, it's like from there on out, and it, it probably goes back to even before this. It probably goes back to, you know, Nixon and OPEC and, and some things like that. But it, it's like American you know, American exceptionalism and America always being involved in this stuff over there has just been a fact of life since then. And it just, it it just drill, you know, it just drills in deeper and deeper every year. Um, And it's just so, um, it's so, so bizarre to see how it's like, you know, it's like a completely different world since then, you know?
1: Right. Well, we threw away a a country, which is, you know, uh, uh, would have been our ally, and we've been. We wouldn't have had to do almost nothing in the in the Middle East. They would have done uh, everything just of their own, and we wouldn't have to tell them, that, that would have just been natural, you know, You know, this Islamic country, imagine this, an Islamic country largely, an Islamic country, even if he had converted to Zoroastrianism still, uh, it would have been an Islamic country that was a friend of Israel, that was a, a uh, you know, and that friendship, of course, goes back thousands of years to Cyrus and to that sort of thing, and yeah. so uh, that that was all. Uh, that, it would be a different world today if that yeah. had not happened. Yeah. And uh, it would have been a better world. Uh, you know, in all in every way, shape, and form. So all of
0: the all of the conventional uh, propaganda is, is 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 geared towards educating us that that's a different world over there, and those people are not like us. But what Say what you're doing with this McGee and Taro book. You're, you're demonstrating that, no, there is a line of, like, our, our, our culture, our language, and these, like, really deep archetypes and symbols actually go back to this common source that is in the Persian realm. And I think a lot of people aren't even aware of that, that, like, Iran was originally, well, that's originally Persia, and the Islamic um, aspect of that is something that happened really kind of fairly recently and the whole mm-hmm. big
1: scope of things right yeah and it was a slow slow you know process of Islamicizing uh Iran uh, because of course Islam didn't spread the way Christianity did with this so, you know, okay here everybody in this whole territory this country or whatever has to be Christian now just overnight they would you know it was a slower more insidious, but, you know, a whole lot more effective in a way, you know, because people had to, and that was something that, because uh, Islam is largely uh, a Persian invention, uh, not of the country or anything like that, but like, you know, Muhammad's barber, Salman, was a Persian, and it was from him that he probably got most of his ideas about how to do ritual, whatever, you know, about how to reform the, arabic paganism you know into a world religion kind of thing Hey, yeah, you know, all the kind of details about praying five times and you know, all kinds of but it, most importantly the idea of the, the zoroastrian idea is that uh, you cannot coerce a person into believing uh, mm-hmm. the truth and so uh but the Muslims came up with a trick, you know, that we would all understand, uh, which was tax incentives, right, where they say, okay, we're going to conquer this territory uh, in the name of this caliph or whatever you call this general, uh, and he conquers just like any military person and his entourage are Muslims, But uh, and then we're going to impose a tax system whereby... Muslims are taxed at a much lower rate than non-Muslims, and there's really no incentive on the part of the uh, leader, so it's a win-win. If you don't convert, I get more money. If you do convert, I have more, you know, human resources and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And you can't get a good job, you can't get anything, you know, if you're not, you know, in with the in crowd. So, uh, but these other people over generations, a couple, three or four, you know, eventually did convert and converted uh, supposedly, you know, it's uh, not coercion. You were just, uh, you know, it's, it's economic, encourage encouragement. <laughs> but, that's, yeah. but that whole scheme was really a nod to uh, Zoroastrian idea. And they will say, Muslims will say, you know, you do not convert To Islam, you revert to it because it is the natural—it's the truth. It's the true religion of all mankind, and you are just awakening to it. uh, And you know that—that whole argument and way of presenting it is essentially a Zoroastrian kind of way, except the difference is one is just a ruse. for a more sophisticated mm-hmm. form of coercion, and the other one just completely does not coerce, even argue, you know. You know, you're an idiot for believing that. No, it's just, you know, this is the way, this is the truth, this is what, what I am, but that's it, you know, no coercion. So... uh but that's where you know, Islam really has its origins there. I have a whole thing yeah, I think in my book The Mazdan Way I have a thing about all that about Islam and Zoroastrianism and that. Also about about Nietzsche. I thought that's one of my favorite chapters in that book. About those yeah. uh, Zoroastrian dimensions of, of Nietzsche to the, how it they that he actually did. Present many uh, Zoroastrian ideas even though he himself he, he said of course his phil- philosophical career began at a moment when he says Zarathustra passed me by meaning he went by his, you know, he came into his consciousness and said a sudden moment and that's what set him off on his and his whole idea of the eternal return is you know again a Zoroastrian kind of idea that's mm-hmm. so uh uh, that's what I think. It may be possible. We're getting into the deep, well, off in the deep woods now. Uh may be possible as far as a post mortem state. And then Nietzsche believed this because he made side comments, you know, where he didn't write about it in detail. But this idea of the eternal return is kind of a Groundhog Day theory that you will not be reborn into the future you will be reborn again in your own generation in your own lifetime Mm -hmm. and you will relive the life you lived of course there will be differences and he says oh the only thing i dread about it is i've got to be with my mother and sister again you know Mm -hmm. because they're like pills and uh so he, but he actually, you know, believed that, and I, I can see that if what, what may be that as we live this life now, you know, when you get these hunches and think, uh, I don't know if I go down that alley or not, you know what I mean? I think that's a bad idea, or any kind of thing that you kind of get a feeling, you don't have a reason for it, you just have a something that it may be, you know, we don't remember it, obviously. If we did, we'd be gods for sure. If we knew what stocks to buy and every to bet on the <laughs> Kentucky Derby and whatnot. But rather we just, we are reborn to to, to live it. It's uh, like the Germanic idea. Of course, they believe you're be reborn in the future and future generations, but you're reborn with certain tools or structures that are your most essential self but you got to relive it with perhaps an improved, hopefully improve, or maybe not. Maybe it'll be worse. But uh, yeah. but you will. There's something about this life that uh, you will uh, be able to remember, but not in any kind of event oriented thing, but rather just some subtle uh, feeling. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that's yeah, so definitely like he what he believed. This. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but th- he definitely did believe that because of these side comments, you know. But I think he did want to write about it in detail because he was, you know, trying to be taken seriously. He would be an occultist at that point, right? Right. <laughs> and so, uh, so...
0: You know, so uh, Spensky talks about this eternal recurrence thing also, and I think it's probably from Nietzsche. It's probably the, the uh-huh. influence from Nietzsche because in... Um, and um, um, what is that book? Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but he has a... He has who, a who is this a, we're talking about? Uh, P.D. Ospensky.
1: Oh, Ospensky, uh-huh, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, it, in yeah, In Search of the no that's it. Mm-hmm. Well, not In Search of the no, that's not it. I, I can't remember which book it is, but um, one of his books he talks about, uh, he has an essay about Nietzsche's Superman, and then he also has an essay about... Um, the eternal, uh, eternal Recurrence, the idea that you live mm-hmm. the same life over and over again. And his one fiction book, or one of his two fiction books that he wrote, The Strange Life of Ivan Osakin, is basically a, a fictional story about that happening. Like he meets a, uh, a, you know, this guy's at the end of his life and he's like, you know, I, I just lived a really shitty life. I made bad decisions about everything, you know, and I regret everything. And then at the end of his life, he meets a, um, a magician who and, and this is like the Gurjev character in the story. Uh-huh. And the magician, and the, magic, the magician says, "I can send you back to live your life over again." Um, but, trust me, but you're probably going to make all the same decisions again." And he says, oh, mm-hmm. let me do it. And so he goes and he lives. His, and this is the main, um, the, the meat of the book is him living his life over again. And even though he's lived it over again and he knows I'm going to, you know, I, I got to watch out for this. I got to watch out for that. He ends up doing all the same things again. And so he right. gets to his life a second time and it, to the point where he goes and he meets the magician. And the magician says,
1: yeah, so that's
0: what happens. The problem is, is you need, like, you need to make, you know, there's some Gertjeffin lesson about this. You need to become mm-hmm. conscious, or you need, you need to make some connection with something beyond, you know, the the mechanical course of things. But, um, yeah, I've always thought that's a very Nietzschean-like influence, because Nietzsche, like, uh, yeah. touch, touches on that as well.
1: Right. I think, oh, yeah, that sounds very fascinating. I mean, I didn't know about that fiction book or that, but that's, uh, that is uh, – yeah what I, I i kind of uh came to that because one of the things i it's a personal thing <laughs> you know because uh, i do believe in this kind of reincarnation idea and uh here's i'm getting older and looking ahead of our culture i'm i i kind of get the feeling that from the past and past times in previous times I was thinking, oh boy, I can't wait for the next life essentially, right? So that I you know, you can carry on and do something. It just seems like we're on the verge of something great. I hope you know, I wanna be involved in that. I I'm looking forward, I'm optimistic about the future. And now I'm thinking, like, oh my God, I don't want to be in the next world. I don't want to be in a world that's coming up. I I I I would dread that. I I, I'm horrified by that. And that's when I got this thing that's like, oh, you're gonna go right back, you know? (laughs) And and that's why you know you're gonna live right back in the same thing again, and. Mm and that's what made me feel a little better
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: about the future past or whatever. And
2: yeah. You know,
1: this guy, uh, one of my mentors, my great mentor uh, in my life, I uh, had like three or four of them, but one of them uh, was a man who was uh, uh, named Bill or William Whitliffe, who was a uh, screenwriter Publisher. He taught me, you know, just I I worked for him, just packing books in 1978, 79, right there. And uh, he had this his own publishing company and this kind of thing. But he would talk to me about weird, mythic magical things, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and I thought, well. He talks to me about these things because, you know, he knew I was into that sort of thing. But then I realized, no, he's got like a psychic he has, you know, and he goes to the psychic. And then he was, you know, he was like, and then I went to his, when I found out that he was really into a lot of things, and uh, I went to his memorial service, he just died, you know, a few months ago. And it was like, oh, my God, this big theater in Austin, you know, it holds like 2,500 people, a whole theater from way back. That thing was packed, you know, completely. And uh, he, he, uh, you know, was a mentor to, I mean, people are like, these are big shots, right? Big people in the world of Texas culture and everything. And he was their teacher, you know, and he's, you know, like he was just this. Uh, and he was uh, referred to by every speaker as a magician, a shaman, a seer, a, you know, this, that, and the other, which was all the things you know that I, I experienced with him. And uh, he, you know, believed in this idea. Well, he, when I was going through bad times, that you know about. I called him up, you know, once, and uh, he gave me a pep talk, and he left me with his uh, motto that he had at the time, his kind of watchword, which was a Spanish phrase called, and it's La vida brinca, life jumps. And then I realized later that he was thinking about this idea of so, something you read about sometimes called quantum jumping right
2: uh-huh.
1: where you jump from one parallel universe to the other and I am not speculating here about him because that's one of the times I was sitting there in his you know behind his in his garden at his publishing company and he said you know I'm really fascinated with this idea that we're like in parallel universes and while we're sitting here talking in some other parallel universe we could be fighting a duel or something that you know <laughs> You know, that kind of a thing. So he was like a real believer in these parallel universes. Psychic, that psychic thing, I didn't... The one of the speakers at his memorial service said he believed he had a psychic, and then that psychic died. And then he went all the way to London to find another psychic to get in touch with his old psychic. <laughs> I mean, and what's so weird about this guy is you think all this kind of stuff, you'd think like, oh, my God, this guy's a nut. But this nut... But uh, as one of the you know, people memorializing said, every day was for him you know, Ferris Bueller's day off. You know, <laughs> something great's going to happen today, something stupid every day. And this guy became, in sitting here as a Texana publisher in Austin, Texas, you know, became one of the most renowned screenwriters uh, in Hollywood. But he never went to Hollywood. He stayed right here in Austin.
2: Mm.
1: he never he refused to learn to type he wrote everything out my longhand. had a typist and uh, such things like that I And mean, he was just this very unique character we say like i'm going to make it in the film business and i'm not going to go to hollywood and i'm not going to type i'm not going to do any of these things and it's, i'm going to make it happen and he made it happen you know, he wrote like, a, you know, I probably heard of Lonesome Dove that tells seriously. Like he, you know, wrote the, the uh, and that's considered to be the greatest, you know, really Western ever done on the, for the screen. And he wrote that, you know, I mean, he wrote the screenplay for it. And uh, so he did uh, astoundingly. People say, well, you cannot do this. You know, you cannot do that. I mean, nobody can do that. And he just did it because he said, I can just do it. I just, you know, I'll just make it happen. And so uh, it had a, you know, joyous thing. So uh, he's like one of my, my, you know, remarkable men, you know, that I met. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I like to think that, you know, some of it, you know, when you have contact with them, like Gurdjieff talks about, you don't just read about them or Hear about them or read their book or whatever. You've got to to meet them, touch them, you know. And, and six words from some higher man, you know, in your right, being right there with them, you know, is is just life changing, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, he's uh, one, you know, one of the few, uh, and we don't have many in our lives. But uh, so. Now, the, ones See, you have, you of... gotta,
0: the ones you have, you got to take. You got to take it. Take it when you can get it. And mm-hmm. um, you know, to bring it back to McGee and Tarak, and this also has to do with Nietzsche. In the introduction, you spent some time talking about postmodernism.
2: Mm-hmm. You
0: case. You make the case that there are some good things about postmodernism before it was hijacked by the Marxists. Right. So talk about that, because my understanding of postmodernism is that it was like always Marxist. It was, it's always bad. It's
1: always <laughs> always bad. bad. Uh, so tell me
0: what's good about postmodernism.
1: Well, if you go back, uh, there, there's a book that's good. I mean, that I read. Uh, when I was teaching humanities I thought, Well, I gotta learn about this. And so this uh, thing that was used as a textbook back in the eighties, uh, called Postmodernist Culture and it kinda traces the whole thing from the beginnings of the idea you know forward and it's like well and when it first started out it was just a rebellion like almost like a uh, revolt against the modern world it's like well there's something wrong with the modern world it has to be uh, changed or whether we're undergoing what you know be called a paradigm shift and going back to our example with the shah and Iran and all that you see that uh, countries cultures can revert to the middle ages overnight it happened in nazi germany where you had the most educated most you know more nobel prize winners most educated more phds per capita than any country in the world and uh, given the right circumstances overnight these people were going back to the middle ages on steroids you know taking medieval superstitions and nonsense and acting on them you know in, in just an unbelievable way you know Iran most advanced greatest you know Islamic country no questions as to where you know, almost like western country there you know, again, overnight, back to the Middle Ages, you know, flogging, you know, hanging, you know, da, 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 all this kind of, I mean, overnight, so it's possible to shift that way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, and these, things, these things show the idea of the myth of progress is a crock, right? Because otherwise, it would just be like plodding along down the railroad track, The more reasonable, logical, educated you become, the further down that track you get. And you don't, then you just make a quantum leap, you know, 60 miles back on the track. That seems impossible. That's crazy. That's illogical. But it's what happens. And so we say progress is not occurring that way. We see it demonstrated in history, and of course, most people were just looking at the early part of the 20th century, where you have this First World War that was just like a war over nothing for stupid ideas, hundreds of millions of people killed, and then the continuation of it, worse than ever, you know, with Nazi Germany and all the other stuff of that. And so... The modernism is, is erroneous there the, the reason is not the savior you mm-hmm. know and if we look at the ancient world like we're looking back at the magian world here we look at the ancient world and we see that there was a whole rainbow of, uh, of possibilities of different cultures different philosophies different paradigms You know a whole spectrum of all kinds of paradigms it would interface with one another in places like greece or in persia etc and uh, cross-fertilize one another and all kinds of things are possible but then christianity comes along or other monotheistic religions like islam and the the whole paradigm all that diversity is reduced to one thing. We just there's one answer. We just use the Christian example. Just says there's one answer. It's faith in Christ and the Church. This, so these are your answers. There are no others acceptable. That's it. Mm-hmm. But then this, we come to question that. So this is nonsense, right? It's superstition and silly. We need reason and logic and in a way return back to a selected part of the ancient world, this idea of uh, Socratic philosophy or whatever. Yeah. Which, yeah. of course, if we actually went back to Greece at that time, we'd see that these people were considered to be nut jobs, you know, <laughs> in Athens. Yeah. I mean, these were people on the outs. These were outsiders and were oftentimes as... Plato was thought to be—he's a reincarnation of Zoroaster, or something. He's a weirdo. But, You know that Greeks were not—you know—promenading about the uh, the agora, you know, thinking about great philosophical ideas. We think that's the way they were because that's what we have selectively plucked out of that culture and uh, and made to be the poster of that world, which is not the case, but uh, but we did select it out of say, well, logic, reason, philosophy, using these ideas in a logical, rational way uh, to answer our questions and our problems. That's the birth of modernism. That we will not be saved by faith in Christ and and uh, the church, but rather by reason and uh, scientists and science and, uh, yeah. and 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 the academic world, but there's only one answer. Again, see, it's a, it's not a rebirth. The Renaissance was sort of like, but the Renaissance didn't really last, right? It was just a short-lived thing in Florence, certain northern Italian cities. There were probably only 80 men involved in what we call the Renaissance. Again, we selectively uh, pluck those people out of the Leonardo or Botticelli or whatever and look at them as the exemplars of that time when really they were, again, a small minority of people. And so, but in the upshot of it is that we get science and logic and reason and that myth of progress over salvation, but it's what it shares with the myth of Uh, the christian myth is that it is there's only one true answer one way one way only so it's not a rebirth of the pagan world at all but some Mm -hmm. kind of replacement of re uh, of faith by reason and so Mm -hmm. again now the first of the 20th century teaches us that's crock also Mm -hmm. You know, reason and logic and science is not getting us where we want to go, where we need to be, et cetera. So, therefore, that's the shift. We're going to something else that's beyond the modern, that's after the modern, that's postmodern. So the first impetus was that we're going to return to kind of the ancient way, where there is a, a plethora of answers and all kinds of things and so forth. And all of that was all great and good, and would have been a good thing. And what I really think is the what postmodernism is or was. But the where is all of this occurring? Where is all this thought occurring? Well, in the in the in the uh, academia, and mm-hmm. it is dominated by Marxists. So mm-hmm. they just look at any. Change any kind of uh, chaos, any kind of as an opportunity to insert their one answer, their modern Marxist answer, you know, to these questions, which are equivalent to the to the you know the Christian ones. I mean, there's one, there's one savior, one ideology, one paradigm. Everything they're, they're really just as monochromal as. Uh, as any of the others we've mentioned, they're not really yeah. post at all. There's nothing unmodern about Marxism. It's a thoroughly modern system, mm-hmm. They even by their own thing. We are the correct ones, right? That whole idea of political correctness is Marxist idea. Mm-hmm. It's like a mathematical problem, right? It's like, it's exactly mathematical that, uh, that you have the historical dialectic that there's plus and minus power you inspired by the sermon on the mount you know kind of you see that the you know the the powerless will become the powerful this is ordained by the historical dialectic therefore you know you always uh, everything is always a conflict between two opposites uh, of course, Marx only applied it to economics, but then the cultural Marxists of the
0: you know, academia
1: uh, applied it to everything and have applied it to everything and are applying it to everything so that any time you have a plus-minus power paradigm going on, then you are bound to support the minus power uh, person, individual or group or whatever. That's why mm-hmm. men can't be, or women can't be sexist, blacks can't be racist, because all these right. isms all have to do with the minus power people as being victims, as being right. the, you know, so Lennon, I think it was, said, you know, either the hammer or the anvil be. Right. And uh, so, but, but you see this the trickery of it all. Is that you look and so you scratch and see? Look, wow! Let's look at academia. Let's look here and there and everywhere. And usually, there's like one of these plus power people, you know, a man, a billionaire, this or that, or the other thing, that are really plus power people that are in the system and are really manipulating and using in a, in a, uh, yeah. in a kind of a demagogue, like a uh, you know a, 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 a uh, demagogue you know, to blame and uh, demonize people who are really their competition, demonize them for being racist, sexist, homophobe, whatever, uh, when they are really none of those minus power things themselves, but are using this paradigm as another leverage for their continued hold on power. Yeah. You know, it's not really the powerless becoming powerful. The powerless are being used by the powerful, certain cadres within the powerful, uh yeah. to hold on to their power. Yeah. So yeah. no, it's all based on inequality
0: so, and it's all based on deposing the people who have the power. There's no pathway there's no pathway of personal individual um success or individual like, you know, accomplishment within that whole system. And, Correct. you know, when I was in, I was in, um, I first heard of postmodernism when I was like, so in college, which is like, you know, the late eighties and early nineties. And, you know, my friends who are like in, you know, art, art students and stuff. And I was taking sociology classes. So people were talking about like postmodernism and all this, but this, I mean, uh, I think of Derrida guys like Derrida. Hey, Derrida. Derrida. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah Derrida. I mean, I mm-hmm. mean, you know, he has this famous book, uh, uh, Spectre of Marx, which, you know, is, is, is based on a lecture. But he's basically saying that, you know, I mean, these guys basically they saw that like, you know, the Berlin Wall came down and because they were all Marxists. They were all just
1: straight up. Mm-hmm. Marxists.
0: All these uh, the right. French people were Marxists. That's where left bank, the term left bank and left wing comes from
1: because they hang out
0: in Paris and talk about how, you know, we're going to, you, know, um, you know, change the world. And, sure. you know, when they saw the Berlin Wall come down and everything and they realized that, oh, behind the Soviet Union's facade of, of, of utopia, it was just like gulags and like sure. stuff, human suffering um, and, and, and stuff like that. And so they decided, well, you know, let's just like move everything into the language sphere. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's where like right after that, all the PC stuff. Started coming out after this, and you can't say this, and you can't say that. I mean, even in the '90s, I mean, I I remember that you know there was you know the the real forward-thinking people were like not going to write words like he or she in their papers anymore, you know? Right. And it's like this has just become a regular thing now. It's totally that's like you know totally expanded into this whole um, whole other like 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 gender kind of thing.
1: Um, right. Oh yes, uh, everything, everything. I mean, you know every you know everything that has a that's polar. I mean, that, that they're like they call binary, right? There's a gender mm-hmm. and race and blah, 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 everything, uh, and that, that's the way they you know model things. Which is Marxist only in the sense that he saw you know that there is a, a, a economic dichotomy between the workers and the and the capitalists. You know. And uh, so, and as a lot of his theories and his uh, analysis, as if you will, are perfectly reasonable. Uh, and as uh, for his his diagnosis of the problem, it's like, oh, I can identify the disease, but my solution. Of course, he was just a thinker, a dreamer, a philosopher, right? That's not, not really having to live with the implementation of this sort of thing. But I don't think that anything, whether than and of course, national socialism is just another form of socialism. Uh, and They were embraced socialism. Most people in Germany at the time when the Nazis came to power were socialists uh, and, and believed in a lot of these things. They were moving away from religion and everything else. Uh, and so they... Uh, But uh, whereas Marxism uh, is based on an economic or class uh, model, the Mm -hmm. Nazis just substituted a biological model, but basically, you know, sought similar structures or theories or, or whatever, you know, based on biology rather than economics. But, uh, the idea that there's a, that there's somehow an so oppressed people. I mean, the Germans saw themselves as definitely oppressed, you know, after the, after the first World War. Uh, and the other, anybody who's oppressed is going to uh, embrace this kind of uh, ideology, right, uh, as, a, as a way of surviving. But the people who are manipulating the system whether they're wearing brown shirts or, you know, whatever, whatever these communists wear, these um, tattered overcoats, whatever, uh, they are gangsters, right? Mm-hmm. They are using this. The, the, the Bolshevik is sitting there going, why should I, you know, try to take, make a company? Why should I? I cannot do anything. I am helpless. But one thing, I, if we do have a revolution, our gang... Will take over the whole damn country, and everything that's in it will be ours. Mm-hmm. What a what a gangster's dream! Yeah, right? and the and the current people in the Kremlin are just you know Bolsheviks who said you know this ideology is a drag, right? Yeah. We're we're really gangsters, so why are we? You know, having to embrace this—that's just keeping us back from doing what we want to do. And now they're just doing what they want to do, or what's going in China. China is a completely Nazi country, absolutely. That now, is. I was going to ask it, you about
0: that. What do you think? Have you been watching what's going on in Hong Kong right now? <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, well, that's just you know they're just but they they uh, look at what's going on in that whole country. It is the Han people, the Han race, you know, the Han tribe, that's huge, you know, millions, billions of people, but they are the ones, I mean, Tibetans and Uyghurs and these, that and the other, any kind of minority people are just, they're just there for enslavement, so this has nothing to do with Marxism or anything, that's just a, well, the reason they embrace, the reason Cuba embraces is just to get. You know, foreign aid and arms, and they could it's a tool, turn it. It's a
0: tool for running the government. It's a tool for running right. the mechanism of yeah. government that is in place, right? Like you like mm-hmm. mentioned, like in, in, inequality. That's a big thing with Marxism. And everyone likes to say, well, Marx was right about one thing there is inequality. But inequality is a natural phenomenon, there's always going to be inequality. And if you could always point to inequality as being a motivation for militarism and social change and changing everything, you always have you always have an excuse for it. Because inequality will always exist. We'll never get rid of it. It will never be eradicated.
1: Right. But but mar but Marxism, communism, whatever, you know, any system you want to name that's that that that's preaching this stuff, including the people talking on the our news programs today. Oh yeah, are not they are uh, Washington D.C. in that area just a few years ago, three decades ago. You know that that was a bunch of bureaucracy. And say, well, you're not going to get rich working for the government. And it's like a file clerk, this and the other thing. It's just like really low paying jobs It's like now Washington D.C. area. Is the richest area in the whole country yep the federal jobs they are a royal class, the government class, and those people uh, and this is what's uh, it's evolving in that socialist direction you go to the Soviet Union in the time and you look at the look down at the street and what do you see? you see no cars. None, except for the motorcade that goes from fortress to fortress and to dacha in the countryside, but that are the party members, right? There were never any more than 10% of the people in the Soviet Union were even party members. 90% of the people were not communist party members, not because 100% of them maybe didn't want to be, but you, it was like a honor, a, you know, you had to prove yourself as a, you know, ideologue or whatever to get in. Not just anybody, it's, 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 you know, you're a made man when you're in the party. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the same thing is happening here. These government people, they talk about the deep state and so forth and so on. And that's one of the things that the, uh, I can't remember his first name, was an Italian guy named Grimoschi who uh, said, you know, and uh, he was a Marxist, and uh, some of the new right people, you know, picked up on his theories and said, yeah, well, his strategy is the one. You know, he said, you know, you control the uh, the bureaucracy of a country, you control its educational system, its yeah. media, okay, and you've got, to, and wait, and you know, keep plugging away, and you will win. You will take that yeah. over. And I think that goes back to times in Babylon or whatever. How did the Akkadians, you know, take over from the Sumerians? How, what happened to the wow. Sumerians? Well, they were subsumed by their bureaucrats, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, their no, bureaucrats so, so took them I, over. I mean, that's like, that's like Russia. Russia, before the revolution, before the Bolshevik revolution, Russia was a huge bureaucracy. They were one of the biggest mm-hmm. bureaucracies in Europe. And so they just took over that mechanism. They took over that structure, and then that's it, you know? And it's like, um, like like, Ireland, like up through the, like the 10th century, was all like under the, the, the 2F system, right? They mm-hmm. had no bureaucracy, no centralized government whatsoever. So the British can never take them over. They kept trying to like you know, fight them and take them over, but they couldn't do it because one king would, like, you know, say, well, I can't vouch for the whole country. Or they'd make promises they couldn't keep. And so they, like, started to call the Irish all day. They don't break their promises, right? Well, mm-hmm. because they had no central authority. They had no sure. structure, no centralized bureaucracy. Eventually, they did get a centralized bureaucracy, and then they got conquered. You know, it's mm-hmm. that simple. But they tell us that we need a strong bureaucracy to keep us safe. Foreign invaders, but the reality is, the more like ingrained your bureaucracy is, the easier it is for a foreign, sure. a foreign invader to take you over. Mm-hmm. They just need to go, hey, who's in charge here? You know, like mm-hmm. when the aliens land,
1: take me sure. to your leader. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yep that's well that's uh that's like globalism like the economy right a global economy well that's a bad idea because it's like you that's why you'll have worldwide economic crisis and so forth well in ancient times people there were whole countries that rose and fell and whole countries are wiped out by disease and famine and the other countries didn't even know those countries existed so let to be affected by it you know what I mean mm-hmm. so you know there was a lot of cells of culture all across the globe and there was rising and there was falling and and they were all disconnected from one another and that was all you know, some of them were great some of them not so great but they were but there was always hope right there was always some place to go or some Source of greatness as uh, they cross fertilized one another, just like I was talking about the ancient world and its spectrum of diverse uh, uh, paradigms and so forth. Each one cross-fertilizing and feeding the others, and and so forth. And so, new things could come up that could affect one another. But you start to homogenize and uh, and, and centralize everything, then. One germ can kill everybody. One calamity, economically or biologically, or you name it, you know, can destroy the whole thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Same, same thing. I mean, it's the same kind of paradigm. exactly that we're talking about. Like with your Irish example, or you know, I mean, that's uh, exactly what happens. So you know that's one of my ideas, or not my idea, but you know the, the advantage of of moving people in the direction of thinking tribally, right?
2: Yeah. And
1: uh, trying to reinstitute the tribal idea, so that you say, well, you know, this is our thing, this is our group, and. We have, you know cultivate our own separate culture. We we interact with others. That wasn't like that. you know there were uh, certain cultures are not so uh, good. I mean that most of, as Indo-Europeans we generally, uh, if we're not schooled by some ideology to the contrary, we generally are kind of uh, xenophilic. We like foreign things. We like exotic things. We thrive on. Yeah. In traveling, interacting with, and receiving people from other places. Now, other uh, cultures, you know, kind of see well. Our thing is the only thing, and uh, anything from the outside is a pollution or a threat or whatever. And nomadic peoples who are nomadic at their most archaic core are generally, you know, not subject to that. You know, it's just not you know, not right. I mean, it just doesn't feel right. But people, no. mostly people who live on rivers, like the Egyptians. Remember the Egyptians, the soldiers, why they could never have an empire outside of Egypt, generally, was like they believed that if you died as a soldier or whatever, you know, on a foreign soil, you were like doomed to hell. You know, you were not going to have a happy afterlife or whatever if you died in a foreign land. So it can't be... Mm-hmm. They couldn't raise and get an enthusiastic army to go anywhere because you know, they said this is yeah. the world. The Nile is the world. And the same thing as most people who live around the Mesopotamian region, they kind of had a similar thing. These river, you know, these idea of holy land, right, that this is a holy land. Uh, whereas the Indo-Europeans, as I read about a kind of Celtic example again, there's a great book, uh, by two brothers, uh Rees brothers, They're called uh, Celtic culture, and it's kind of a uh, kind of thing to a great extent. But uh, they talk about this really cool idea, how they could, how in Ireland, you know, this idea that it's, uh, it's five provinces, four are clear, but then there's a center. There's a center and then four outlying, you know, uh, outlying regions. And uh, they call them the fifths, right, the fifths of Ireland. It's divided into five areas. But this is a thing that uh, people did, nomadic-type people, uh, that they would say, okay, we're going we're wandering around out here on the steppe or wherever, and then oh, we're going to sit down here for a while, Well, we just kind of unfold our universe. We've got a center and four regions around us, right, and we just unfold it. And say, so here's the homeland. Well, we don't like it here anymore. Pick up, you know, kind of fold it back up and trek on down the road and go to a whole yeah. different world and then unfold it again. Oh, the, home, the homeland is where we put the pole down and unfold the universe, you know?
2: Yeah.
1: And that's that's the home. You know, that's, uh, and that's probably the way you know, why we can, and why as Americans, we just come and put, come to a new place, and that's it. Now this is our, our ancient homeland, or wherever. We just don't yeah. feel uh, like, you know, we we're not, uh, have to go back to Jerusalem, or whatever, you know, to really be at right. home.
0: So I have to ask you, if if, if, if this relates to any of this, Zervanism and the Zervanite heresies.
1: Yeah. <laughs> what is
0: the Zervanite heresy?
1: What well, is the Zervanite heresy? Well, it's the, the idea that one is unfree. You just can relate to that, I'm sure. That is that uh, that there is a mechanistic, uh, astrological uh, time. You know, if Zervan is time. Right, mm-hmm. And that, uh, that is how time measures movement of the me- mechanism of the universe, the mechanism. And so uh, a lot of it is historically an influence from the Mediterranean world, from the Greek world, et cetera, who were kind of believers in that sort of thing. Whereas the, the you know, Zoroastrian people and the idea was know, uh, that there's a creator of time, the time is a tool or a a mechanism that is like a tool for divinity to use but it is not the divinity itself we're not subject Mm -hmm. to it unless we choose to be enslaved by it and uh, so Zurvan, Zur, Zur, the concept of Zurvan, Zurvan uh, is, is in the, you know, in the Sirosas and so forth. I mean, there's there a couple of times, and it's just a word in, in the mm-hmm. old texts, uh, but it's not a god, right? But uh, mm-hmm. it becomes that under the influence of people who were mechanistically oriented. And these are t- typically... Uh, well, they were. You know, the, I don't know how much the Egyptians were, but certainly the Mesopotamians were, right? Uh the, the idea, like in Egypt, was the rising and falling of the Nile—that there's a cycle of times. That's reality. And in Mesopotamia, these—you uh, know these cycles of time and astrology and all that sort of thing being the If you understand these mechanisms, then you understand the world. That's essentially the the body of God or the body of the divinity. Uh, Whereas, uh, you know, you see something like, uh, again, the Indo-European people didn't, you know, they navigated by the stars, whether it was on the sea or more typically on the land. You know, you're on the steppe and it's uh, it's just a sea of grass, right? so you know that's good to navigate by but uh, to say you are determined by it uh, is a different thing and you see that uh, for example uh, we're like Christianity for example you see that the, the mechanism is important that for example the date on which Easter is celebrated when uh, the, the one of the big things when the Celtic church, so-called, there a different, you know, had some differences with the Roman church, and when they started, you know, when they amalgamated them, two of the most important things, or the two most important things that the Roman church demanded was that the Celts uh, celebrate Easter on the right day, you know, according to the mechanism, which is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox, that that's how you determine what Easter is. And so that's what they did. I mean, that's what they enforced. But typically, when you look around uh, the world, uh, in the European world, you see, like, well, where is this going to... It's a natural thing. So that, for example... uh, the day of the dead, of the ancestors and that sort of thing, uh, in the Celtic world is what we just had was the a, was a Samhain, right, which is uh, you know first part of uh, of November, end of October by our reckoning. The same thing in among the Germanic in the Germanic world is in the winter solstice time, that is the end of December same kind of uh, celebration same thing but one is earlier why because the Celts are, Southern, are are central European people and the Germanic peoples are northern European so there's a difference by uh, uh, as far as nature is concerned to when the natural phenomena take place from region to region, place to place. It's not a mechanism, it's an organic, biological, visceral reality which we experience. How is spring determined? Not by a mechanism of the stars, but, for example, when does the first violet appear in this sacred grove? for example. Ah, there it is. There's the first violet. It's spring. It's time. Nature has determined when spring has arrived at our place. So it's local. It's organic. It's real. Because, you know, we're going to have to plant crops. We're not going to say, well, it's springtime. Time Time to do this. It's like if you're in Minnesota and you're up to your ass in snow. No, it's not spring. You know, it's not. It's a me- by mechanism, it is, but not by nature. And so, uh, going back to the question of Zorvan, Zorvan is the mechanism. It's universal. It's global. It's mechanistic. And uh, so that's, but it's not based on the actual inner experience of the tribe, the person, the individual, etc. and so forth. Well, and so again, it's a what violation of freedom. Of it? Well, it violates the free freedom of the individual, of the tribe, of all those things. It, it enforces a uh, uh, coercion. It's coercive. Uh-huh. It's cosmically coercive. It it, it limits one's freedom. Uh, it says, "Well, that's it. I, I'm faded. You know, this is the way it is. It's okay. written, so it is written. So I got to submit." You know, to the thing, so it's more of a uh, uh, you know something that is, can can be used by people that uh, want to use such things to you know coerce individuals or others, and uh, and it was uh, never you know I mean really when people look at Zoroastrian say well there never was even a Zoroastrianism really it seems to have been a constructs of scholars more than anything. You know, it might have been yeah. just a, and nothing more than an influence of, of Mediterranean or, uh, you know, Greco-Roman thinking on the Persians as they would, you know, accept anything. Uh, I mean, you know, look at anything and say, oh, that's interesting. And so forth. And, yeah. Uh, it was attractive to the you know for example in the whole story of going back to the magi or that that there is a why so well these magians were uh, zorbanites some people would say and why how do you think that and know that well so, because they were so into the astrological that is mechanisms in the sky right well, what they were, uh, this is something that somebody would need to take up. It's like a huge uh, thing that could be, uh, some people know it, some people know about it in, you know, in Iran and wherever, but uh, the idea of the, the what kind of astrology did these people practice that was so important. Well, some of it was, you know, mechanistic. Probably the star of Bethlehem, so-called, is probably a... Uh, you know, conjunction in a certain a conjunction of uh, stars uh, in a certain constellation in the constellation of Aries, let's say, because each constellation would have a, a country or region ascribed to it. So that if a if a conjunction of uh, Jupiter and Venus or whatever took place. In the constellation of Aries, then they would determine that a Syushant is, is born uh, in, the, in Israel somewhere. See? And so that's the kind of a thing that Zerbanites think. But uh, what they were, uh, that's part of it. But what a lot of the practice was, and that's what these temple these star. Uh, observatories that are on mountain tops in the Iranian world from ancient times what uh, and a lot of the prayers and the idea that they had this uh, the fire temple the fires burned eternally there uh, on these temples, and they were uh, attended around the clock by priests and so what did they do when they were attending the fire Well, part of what they did otherwise was they watched the skies mm-hmm. and what they're watching for are all kinds of really remarkable phenomena that is things like comets things like uh, novas or other things they would just scour the skies constantly just like a meditational this thing and observe strange phenomena who knows what they saw you know who knows? it could be space brothers flying in who knows but uh, you know they they saw things and they recorded them and they said that's a portent you know but it wasn't necessarily a mechanistic predictable portent but rather just a weird phenomenon like the one I experienced when I was five years old uh, when I saw the occultation of Venus it's recorded or shown in my book, uh, the uh, uh, history of the Rune Guild, which is mm-hmm. a lot autobiographical. And I actually have a thing my mother saved from uh, the newspaper, our local newspaper in Denison, Texas, because this phenomenon is where a, in this case Venus, usually it is Venus, or because it's the only big planet that you know would would could do this really. Uh, gets uh and the moon comes uh in front of it and from our angle you know it's just right there on the rim of it you know and what this did was the most remarkable uh i've never seen anything like it even in photographs of any kind and that is that it was a crescent moon and this planet this life this planet where we learned later was right on the point of the crescent.
2: Mm.
1: And when, when it hits that, you know, it's like these kind of things, like what you see with the, the, uh, the uh, uh, you know, eclipses of the sun, where, you know, it's like, boom, it's just like really looks like a bright light, you know, like something is like, it's not just sitting there, but it rayifies, and it just looks like an explosion, really. And that's what this newspaper article points out. So people were thinking that the Russians, this is 1959, the, the the Russians had exploded an atomic bomb on the moon. That's what this oh. newspaper article said. People were thinking that that's what happened. Now, this was not visible except in a certain, like a little swath of the land, right? This would not be, this is in Denison, Texas, in far northern Texas right there and uh, that would just be visible up there or you know along a line in the, but but not necessarily in Dallas or in Oklahoma City or wherever else because that you imagine the, the miraculous nature of something that the star is a point the, the planet is a point of light and that point of the crescent moon is also just a point how many infinite numbers of points are there in the night sky? That mm-hmm. if these two things would come together, point to point, and do this scene, uh, is the kind of thing. What I'm saying here about the Zorka, about the priests, is that that's the kind of thing they would see and think that is there's something big's happening. You know, and so. The, they put these things together, Venus, the moon, uh, as far as the meaning and where it occurred, what constellation was the moon in at the time, and that sort of thing. But it's not mechanistic. You can't predict these things. I guess you can, but you don't know what it's going to look like, I think.
2: you know, yeah.
1: uh, Because nobody ever talks about it. I heard one time... At somewhere Boston station. we got a lot of different stations and somebody, some weatherman was talking about, well, tonight there's going to, this thing, something weird's going to happen with the moon and Venus, you know, but that was of course just for there. But I tell you, you know, when I saw it and I was just a little kid and, uh, you know, I mean, it was life changing. Wow. You know, I mean, that was my first kind of room, you know, experience. It, uh, It it made it. It was strange.
0: Yeah.
1: And so that's but that's the kind of thing where I'm saying this is not you know mechanistic. This is like people looking, miraculous seeing, and uh, it's like an omen, you know. Yeah. But uh, but that see it it can't be predicted. The the, the Zorvanite thing is like we want to know about when the. Uh, const when the conjunctions will take place and what in what uh, constellation will they take place we can predict these things we can manipulate these things we can use them in propaganda or anything else uh, but it's all a mechanism yeah but then things like novas and comets, and you know these occultations and other things are things you have to observe you know yeah. and experience then that's more free. Why? So,
0: so tell me where I'm going with this. So, like Zervanism. Here's my 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 conception of it. Is that the the Mazdaism? The, the basic understanding of it is that there's a Hura Mazda, and there's this conception of like you know consciousness, like consciousness and individual mm-hmm. consciousness. Individuality is born, right? And then there's like this opposing force, you know, that rises up in response to that, I undermine you, right? There's like mechanicalism uh-huh. or evil, right? There's a sense of evil. And Zervanism comes in to say, Oh no, wait. Time like created both of these things. Father Time created both of these. So he created like consciousness and he created anti consciousness. He created them both. So they're just going to struggle against each other forever and really need to watch out for time. So then it's like, oh, well, everything is dualism, right? Everything's dualism. You can't have darkness without the light. You can't have light without the darkness,
1: you know? Right, but that's, um, uh, that's, uh, that's uh, where in, uh, in Zoroastrianism and the Mazdism, uh, they, the dark and the light, and you know, are not equal. That is, the light precedes the darkness. The darkness is an anomalous interloper and is inferior to and uh, because it's a lack, right? It's a lack of light,
2: mm-hmm.
1: just like with the way that. And this is where probably like Plato is like channeling or you know receiving this kind of thing from uh, Persian philosophy. That uh, evil is a lack of good. Good, like the agathon, there's no, in, you know, polyplatonism, there's no anti-agathon, right? It's the equal and the equal uh, uh, polar opposite of the agathon. The agathon is up there as the one, the light, the truth, and all that, and then it, it's like a light that comes down, and it just eventually gives out, Uh, and becomes darkness uh, because there is a lack of light and it's a lack of light, lack of being which is evil. That is, it's detrimental to and uh, contrary to the interests of the light. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: so uh, they're, they're not equal. They're not like a... That makes sense. You know, it makes sense to the to the uh, to the mind, to the conscious, to the logical mind, that you would say like this idea of there's time, and then there's you know two uh, of sun, two sons of time, uh, one dark, one light, and all that kind of thing. It all makes good sense. It seems to make logical sense, and it doesn't really stretch our imaginations or need. We don't need to stretch our imaginations to understand it. Whereas the uh, Mozdun mythology or uh, paradigm is uh, something that really you know you got it just it doesn't necessarily make sense of it on the surface of it. You have to sort of experience it uh, in order to say uh, well that's what it, what it is. Uh, but it also the verbanite thing part of the problem of it is just that it limits freedom of the individual because know yeah. so, consciousness so you are free and we are both familiar with a philosophy wherein say you know freedom of the isolate intelligence that is the good yeah. and things that are the you you know the tetragrammaton being nature being you know a mechanism and then nature is a machine is an organism however you want to whatever metaphor you want to use, it's not free. You know? And yeah. so uh Mazda uh, is freedom, yeah. is liberation, you know, is uh, yes. the liberation of the of the individual mind, of the divine mind to to uh, create something uh which is unimaginable, you know, otherwise, uh, so, uh, and that's why, you know, Zirvanism is heretical to me, and I think to all, to Zoroastrians, I had a Zoroastrian, you know, guy, Parsi, in one of my classes, way back in German class, and uh, he was a big, you know, big guy, and everything, and he was, like, from India, obviously, you know, so there were other Indians in class, and blah, 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 and, uh, he said, "So something came up, you know, in class, I, and I just," he said, uh, "Oh, well, I'm not uh, Hindu." Uh, and I said, "Oh, I know you're a Zoroastrian." He said, "How did you, you, know, how do you know? How do you know that? You know, it's, it's like if you're not that, you're probably this, you know. It could be some few other things." But and then he came by my office and talked to me regularly, and at the time, I. Uh, was reading like Zayner and people, you know, like he was been through the Zoroastrian, you know, Zorvan, those books, and I was reading in them, and uh, I said, Well, what about Zorvan? And he goes, He just looks at me kind of like with a like sour look on his face and say, Yeah, he wasn't a religious guy. He could tell me all kinds of weird stories about the religion, but you know, he wasn't, you know, really into it. And he goes, Well, I don't know. He says, You know, Zorvan, he is a demon or something. You know, I mean, that's like, you know, he, he's sort of vague. But it's not a big thing, but it's uh, certainly not a good thing. You know, <laughs> he knew it, he heard it, but it was uh, bad. It was, evil. it was an evil thing. So, uh, but like Zayner and uh, made a big deal out of it. And then I think Zayner retracted, you know, a lot of his stuff. You know, I was in error in my interpretation of a lot of his stuff when the uh, you know when the Zoroastrians explain to him why this is not uh, you know uh, the, the, you know, show me the, the Zorbanism show me you know this the texts, so show me not yeah. that they didn't exist like we see some art and there's one of these things in in uh, Henel's book on Persian mythology where he has a picture you know, uh, yeah. that's obviously Zorvan. you know, where you see the, the two entities coming out of his shoulders and on the side of each one of them are like, you know, the uh, whole army or line of sort of misshapen creatures, you know, that are like on the side of Parman and then very splendid, good-looking creatures on the side of uh, Ormaz, you know. So, I mean, it so exists, it's a myth
0: You know, one thing that always happened is that um, Anton LaVey always had people saying So Satan, that word, is just a Christian creation So if God, like, really created it Then are you doomed to fail, you know, eventually? Mm-hmm, and, you know, you know, Dr. Aquino talks about this Like the stacked deck paradox, right? Yeah talked about the psychic paradox that like you know like really like god if if you're worshiping satan well god created that so y'all you're gonna lose eventually right you're ultimately under his will this creation of that and Mm -hmm. that's what observantism like sounds like to me it's like representing that you know
1: yeah um, yeah i think that's i think that's uh, you know a good analysis there that's uh, very similar uh but you know let's like uh what you have in the case of both Honda uh, Mazda, and you know, like the the Satan of uh, you know Mike Laquino, or of, even of Anton Lavey, really, you know, is uh, say, so, well, the, the, these are not we don't believe in or give credence to the Christian mythology at all. I mean, that this thing is something else. You know, and that's where Doctor mm-hmm. Quino says, "Okay, he defines set as virtually the same thing." Even though he certainly didn't know anything about or had no interest in Zoroastrianism or the details of, you know, Zarathustra's yeah. ideas that way. So it's not not that he got that from that, no, but that yeah. his definition and that that uh, Zarathustra would be given to Ahura Mazda are virtually the same thing and uh, both are really saying that these entities are the, the individual mind or kind of a psyche and that of that from which that individual thing is derived the cosmic prototype of that thing uh, which would be power Lord Wisdom which of course is doesn't mean the Lord of Wisdom or whatever, it means Lord Wisdom meaning Lord control uh, wielding and wisdom, and that's masculine, and wisdom, a feminine noun, meaning consciousness or thought. And so it's like a yin yang concept of uh, the power. Oh, well, you know, at the layer in the, the Tantra, in the Tantrism, it talks about Shiva and Shakti being the power and the power holder, power and the power wielder. Right, mm-hmm. this is kind of like wisdom and the wisdom wielder or consciousness and the consciousness you know, user, yeah, as a single entity, you know, but as yeah. a already a bifurcated entity that there's two parts of it, and that's of course part of the the, the, the physics of the cosmos that there is this. Duality all dualities aren't good and evil, that's just one of them you know that uh, that's there uh, uh, uh but uh, there there are natural or other all kinds of dualities and uh, here we have to start with two one doesn't do anything right the Greeks or the Greek uh, uh philosophers said the one is like what we think of as zero right because there's, if there's no other part of it then it's just like one thing it's just one thing and then and, and there's no other so therefore it is akin to or equivalent of our concept of zero and so they really have to have two things in order to have many things as any computer scientist will tell you right <laughs> You get zero and one and you go into the infinity from that point on. You can do anything with that. But you have to have those two terms in order to do that. And so those uh, being a potent creator, uh, Ahura Mazda has to have this polarity within it. And so uh, that's, that's, uh, that's uh, what I'm uh, thinking about those uh, concepts there. But that's, again, uh, I I think that it's a problem uh, that is more more historical or literary than it is something that was actually something that plagued or uh, Zoroastrian thinking or ideas. I mean, things like Mazdakism, you know, the Mazdaqians and that kind of thing, Uh, those are real well, things that were real organizations and real movements within Zoroastrianism and so forth uh, social play and all kinds of things but Zoranism is just a, uh, a mode of thinking that is just auxiliary you know what I mean it's not really in competition with it, uh, with the orthodoxy, but is just a so kind of like the way Kabbalah is in Judaism. I mean, I knew this guy who's a family, You know, one of my first wife uh, had a she was Jewish, and she had you know, all these Russians and uh, Austrians and all these kind of old people, uh, family members. There's one guy. His name was, or he was, who went by the moniker in the family of Uncle Zeda, which is kind of a weird. Name because Zeta means like grandfather, so he's like uncle grandfather, and uh, he was uh, an Orthodox kind of guy, and he was, but uh, he was in, you know did Kabbalah, you know, uh, and he was like in his eighties or something when I met him, and uh, uh, you know he was the real thing. Anybody said you know like we just meet, you know, at the synagogue or wherever, but it's not part of the religion; it's something else, you know. Mm-hmm. And they don't, you know, the rabbi doesn't really like what we do, you know, he's like them, but, you know, it's just, but, you know, it's totally Judaic in the way they approached it, and it wasn't thought to be, oh, that's terrible, you need to stop that, but rather it's just a, uh, a side thing, right? Yeah. Now, there's some sects, like the or you know, the Hasidim the and all this kind of stuff, you know, are really make it more of a central part. But uh, I think that's kind of the way the Zurbanism went and, and Zoroastrianism, even though it's totally forgotten now, except by scholars. But uh, such as it existed, it was uh, just a, a Mediterranean influence. Yeah, of, of me- right. mechanistic, astrological fate, the orientation toward, which is so dominant in the Greco-Roman world, the idea that fate, you know, ruled everything. Yeah. You know, the yeah, wheel so of it's fortune.
0: Yeah, always a thing. I mean, the whole concept of fate always comes up when people start talking about, you know, whenever you have a question about, what am I doing in life? what am I doing? Was this meant to happen or am I paving the way? And uh, it's always a philosophical question, but I found that I think if you approach things with a, uh, from a basis that it is possible for you to succeed and to create and things like that, then that is more desirable.
2: And maybe that's mm-hmm.
0: just like a thing that comes down to left-hand path versus right-hand path. It's like that's the way I like went and found things out and everything. And maybe some people don't need that. Some people want to know, you know. They they want to just be told, hey, everything's fine, you know. Mm-hmm. We got it all under control. They want to know that there's a plan. And it's stressful for them to think. Right. It
1: gives you plan. a sense of if, every, if an authoritative figure Tells you everything will be okay, or you know this is the we'll, you know apply these things and do these things and everything will turn out all right. That you will you know, but of course uh, they're of course uh, they're usually are using those ideas to control you, uh, but. Uh, at the same time, even if you say, "Well, let's not do that. Let's not put in let that in the, into the picture," but rather say simply that uh, the idea that there is uh, that you're preordained to be a great
2: man—you
1: know—that that's a, a a magical way of thinking—and like I was talking about the. Bill Whitliff and his psychic thing you know he wanted a psychic I think to tell him you know you can do it you know it's it's a, it's a written in the stars that's you're gonna it's gonna work for you and then to have when you believe that you get a kind of an energy and a, a belief that in the face of all odds I will succeed you know mm-hmm. I've been told this I've been I believe this I believe that I am a man of destiny and so those are powerful powerful uh, myths personal myths to use Mm -hmm. for you know magical purposes and so that there's not that it's silly or stupid or anything like that no it is powerful you know and and so forth, but uh, there's a big difference, or a difference without a distinction, or a distinction without a difference between, like, the Germanic way of thinking of fate, of Urmerk, and the Indian idea of karma, and that sort of thing, that that is, so that we make our own fate, even if it could be actions that we uh, did uh in past lives, even are going to but it's our we it's our doing we made mm-hmm. our beds and we're sleeping in them now, but we created it, we made it happen through our actions, and the reactions to our actions are the fruits which we are reaping now from our past actions that yeah. kind of belief that's the Germanic kind of in a way. And perhaps the Indian and per whatever, but the greco Roman world would have this idea of the mechanism that there is a star that you were born at this time, that you were you know your soul, like the way that astrology was supposed to work traditionally was that the soul fell from the firmament from up beyond the stars came down through the planets as it was going to enter their soul it Was going to enter into the womb of your mother and and reunite with that body but it's going to pick up certain characteristics and traits depending on how, where the planets were as you fell through those planetary spheres and there you picked up all of these things and you're boom, you're in there and you didn't do it, you know. Somebody just shot you out of a barrel up there and you went wow. through this stuff and you know, it was all ordained. And yeah. depending on when that happened Yeah. In time, see, uh, is how you were going to be configured. And you're either doomed or destined, depending on the the, the stars. Yeah. And so it is written. It is written. You know, if it is a done Yeah. And so, you know, and you see that there's a linguistic component to this, in the sense that uh, the Germanic language. Uh, you know doesn't have a future tense really I mean we say I will go but there is nothing future about will and there's nothing future about go Uh, it's just you know we just conventionally understand that that's going to take place in some non past present time but in uh, Latin, Greek and Latin languages, Latinate languages, romance languages, there's a definite future tense. There's a verb form which is future, you know, so that the idea that the future is fixed, it has a form, you know, is, uh, is more visceral, you know, in those languages than it is in ours, so, so they, for that, can you? Is there a tense
0: for that in English? Is there an equivalent for well, that? Well, we
1: have a future tense, but it says I, I, I went, I, uh, I go, and I will go. Mm-hmm. But see, uh, I went. That's a definite form, and mm-hmm. I go. That's a definite form. But I will go, or I could just say I am going tomorrow. Mm-hmm. There's nothing, I, mean, I understand that tomorrow is a, in, as in, the, you know, in the future, in the not yet happened, uh, but there's no definite concrete form for that concept. And there's different ways you could go about getting at that concept, but it's not fixed, see? Mm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so uh, you see that the, the, the Norns, the names of the Norns, and uh Germanic you know are Urder, that which has become that is past Verdandi that which is becoming, which is turning, which is happening now, to present moment past oh, okay, it's already gone, uh, it then skeoped that which ought to happen or should happen, but you notice that well I couldn't notice because it it's not transparent, but uh urder and Verdandi are derived from the same verb, whether the to become or to turn
2: mm.
1: uh, same verb, two forms the same verb uhcro yeah. is just a completely different verb, and that's really common in the triadic uh, arrangement of symbols of all kinds in the Germanic world is that you'll have three things, two are similar, one is different, yeah. You know To, be, to uh, become,
0: to become, which relates to like kefer,
1: right? Yes. Well, you know, it's a different yeah Yeah, that's uh, and of course that verb has it can mean becoming or, or or being also. You know, so uh, yeah, it's uh, well, yeah yeah so that uh, but I'm I'm not sure, but I, I imagine in Egyptian there is a definite future, you know, tense. Most languages have that. It's, uh, but I think that it's uh, you know part of the Germanic strength or whatever about it. why why it was Germanic peoples who put people on the moon. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. Is that
1: I said you know the future is something we can make. You know it's not predetermined. It's not fixed by some outside force or whatever. But we make it happen. We make it. So therefore, let's. Uh, you know, in the words of Jim Morrison or whatever, let's make some myths. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Uh, it's so awesome. Well, Dr. Flowers, thank you so much for, like, coming on again and, and, and all of this and for giving us this great book, The McGee and Tarak. I hope everyone who's listening to this, buy this book. It's important, and it will make you a smarter person.
1: Yeah. Yep, that's. that's uh, I do you hope have any, that's. Do you have any final words for us? Uh, well, no. I, I'm always uh, working on new new things. I tell you, I uh, I, I produce quite quite a bit. I, and then I sometimes uh, I just get off on a tangent and write another book. It's like my retribalization book. That's going to be coming out very soon with uh, Arcana Europa uh, Press. Awesome. And then I just got a contract uh, for a new book. Uh, called the runic revival with inner traditions and oh, it's a exactly. sort of well if it takes the runic revival both from the scholarly standpoint you know about how the runes were sort of rediscovered and the whole history of scholarship there as well as the esoteric so no one has ever written a book about either one of those topics but but much less uh, About those two things together and how they interweave and don't interweave is the other really interesting part of how uh, scholars the scholarly understanding of runes and the esoteric or magical one were more often than not just completely alienated from one another you know Mm -hmm. and uh, how That's really a lamentable situation, but how we're coming back to uh, to uh, doing this, and then uh, I'm making great progress on one of my uh, big books, uh, which is uh, on uh, Nazi occultism, where I will tell my take on that whole thing, which will be surprising to most people because it's. You don't, uh, well, what was there is not what people think was there. You know, I mean, we we really, uh, so many, many books have been written that have these crazy hobby horse theories, you know, about, oh, it was the Cathars or it was the this or the spear of destiny and other just wildly kooky, uh, uh, sectarian kind of interpretations. When in fact, the the real story, you know, is far more engaging, interesting, and uh, useful, powerful. Not so much as uh, something that we can use, but rather something we can understand and not be taken in by similar kinds of things in the in the future. Uh, m- much of what we call branding and uh, You know, logo, like the use of logos, branding, uh, and that sort of a thing were really pioneered by uh, National Socialism and uh, Mm -hmm. such things as the use of ritual. And sometimes we still use their rituals. You know, the the, uh, Olympic torch lighting ritual that everyone loves and watches, that is a completely... Nazi invention. They they said, this is a liturgical thing that they invented for the Berlin Games, and it says, "Wow, that is great! <laughs> that is so wonderful! Wow. We're just going to do it forever." And uh, but it's just completely invented by them. But that's what they would uh, do, and so you can see, you know, part of say, how these uh, things like that worked, and. Uh, why they worked, and then you say, well, and also people don't look at, uh, you know, occultism from the standpoint of actual, uh, define what occult means. So that is either something which is uh, uh, something that was formerly established that's become disestablished and therefore rejected knowledge, or it's stuff that you know, people haven't accepted yet. For example, the use of psychology, or or uh, uh, this kind of branding thing, and, and using the irrational mind. And if you read, when anybody reads uh, Hitler's book Mein Kampf, you say, this guy is spilling the, the beans all the time, right and left, in there because I think he didn't oh, yeah, even no, he think said anything.
2: everything. He he explained yeah. everything.
1: But even things like, we will have, you know, torchlight, you know, things at night. Why do we do that at night? Because the mind is more receptive to impressions at night than it is during the day. So we're going to, she's telling her, I'm going to do black magic on you right here. And uh, we're going to, we're lapping it up, you know, (laughs) we're going to love it. And so, but he's telling people, this is why I'm having these torchlight parades at night and all that sort of thing, because I'm going to be working on your mind, but not like people think like, uh, you know, I'm sitting there chanting to the devil or something to make you, which is, you know, something that was about in German culture at the time. Think of all the... The, the films in the silent era about some mastermind who's manipulating the masses mass mind, or or like Caligari and his Caesar or dr. Mabuza or uh, the golem you name it it's mm-hmm. just like everything one after the other this idea of controlling the uh, the environment you know, through magic and that sort of thing it was just out there But one of the main things that people don't realize about the whole movement and the whole world of that culture was uh, that it's all really part of the great reform movement in Germany, uh, wherein uh, it started about 1880, uh, and where every kind of thing in the social, cultural world was open to new ideas and ideas of reform, you know but as things like for today we think of uh, like I go to a class or whatever on the environment and ecology and they'll tell you like uh, oh well you know what you've got you know these you know, Japanese honeysuckle plants you got to get rid of that that's an invasive species right Mm -hmm. and well that's sort of the nazis sort of invented that idea as an invasive species it's a very idea, and then it's like well extrapolated from that or use the same theory you say well in culture and history and society you know the good is the ecosystem which is natural and Uh is uh, just within itself uh, authentic real and uh and so you're going to have invasive species like foreigners, like gypsies yeah. and Jews and whatever. And these are unhealthy to the organism of of the culture, and yeah. so have to be eradicated in order to make the culture healthy again. But you know, that there's some yeah. um, whole books written right about the green movement, you know, and its roots in national socialism and so forth. So you have to yeah. watch out. I mean, any human. Yeah. You know, I mean, think about the things you adopt as a concept and an operating principle in your life and where's this stuff going to lead maybe, you know? What are the, keep going on down the road with this idea and see where does it end up, just like socialism ending in, uh, without fail, in totalitarianism, you know, somebody's got to call the shots. Somebody's going to plan your life, and you're going to have to submit to it, you know.
0: That's what I was thinking about earlier um, when you were talking about, um, like, uh post-modernism, how it overcame modernism. And to me, mm-hmm. kind of like pro- progressivism, right? And progressivism, mm-hmm. right. to me, is like, and I had um, I, I had a guy on the show a little while back who who had, like, grown up in, like, Soviet Russia and, like, emigrated here, like, in the 70s. And he's like, it's like, he, progressivism is when they take science, and they say science is how we're going to, like, run society. And the progressives say, well, we know what's the best thing for society, so we're just going to tax everyone, take all the money, and we're just going to do whatever we need to do, and it's for everyone, it's, it's for the best interest of everyone, you know, He's right. concerned. And we know what's best. We're going to take the money and we're going to do, and the people are just going to, like, go along with it. And it's, like, the basis of that, you can still see that, like, um, the the manifestations of that occurring in the the green movement um, today. Uh But, I mean, at the time that National Socialism took over, I mean it, it was like progressivism in America was very you know very eugenics and everything was like a it. Oh, yeah. well that's How where we're going to make a better future for everyone uh-huh. and you know that, that the same thing like appeared in national socialism at the time
1: yes well that's where Hitler got most of his ideas on eugenics from the Americans the Americans were had a much more advanced eugenics program much more uh implemented and all that sort of thing than anything in germany and he just you know took that basically uh, you know over and uh so uh, yeah, and one of the things you have to do when you're thinking about something like national you know, it's like people say, Oh, he's a Nazi, Nazi this, Nazi that it's like, Well what is Nazism? You know, what is national socialism? So part of life's like with my uh Lords of the Left Hand Path, I said, Well you gotta start with some pretty definite definitions in order to understand what it is we're talking about. So i mean, I put in there what most people don't even know exists and that's the twenty five points of national socialism and uh you know, and how from that you know a lot of things, everything falls into place. After one of the big things that's written there, one of the things people don't realize is how much uh, the uh, was based on the, the socialism part was like based on the uh, the, the abolition of uh, the payment of interest and of uh, the use of interest as a you know lending money for interest was abolished was going to be abolished and uh and that was that was the reason and churchill says in his memoir so that is the reason why germany had to be stopped and eradicated because that could have uh ended the whole you know the goal and and this goes beyond that. it goes into an esoteric level the guy walter johannes stein who's the guy uh, that was the mentor of the guy who wrote the spear of destiny you know believed that uh the, like the world monetary system was the equivalent of the holy grail and that there was like an esoteric dimension to that
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh you know that, that was like the system that would continue to, to to feed you know everyone everyone who mattered you know forever forever in a kind of a magical way and uh these, you know the nazis said you know we have to abolish you know the payment of, of interest to either you know anyone you know involved it had to be abolished
0: well you and, know that's in uh, islam too that's in islam too like uh the koran says yeah, that charging charging interest is evil. You cannot charge interest against other Muslims, but you can charge mm-hmm. interest against pagans.
1: You can charge interest right.
0: against Persians and everyone who's not a Muslim.
1: Anybody who's not Muslim, yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's a, that's that's a thing, and uh, I don't know how pra- you know. Practice. I mean, the, the use of you know that's what capitalism is really all about, right? I mean, it's a, like this idea that there's. A, uh, that you're uh, making money without doing anything just by having money and then lending it wherein by person has to pay you for the convenience of having you know the money up front and then you pay them twice as much over time you know for the for the money that, uh, that was lent to you and uh, that it's not they're not producing anything that was a criticism that Germans had of in general about london style capitalism is that it's not in you know, what we see all around us today is that people are uh, uh, making money without doing anything other than moving paper right that that's a, that's a kind of a a, a disease. If you're like, well, I need money. I need some money up front for my invention. This automobile idea, and I'm going to build automobiles, sell them, and then I'll pay you back. But I need some money right now to get that uh, project off and running. Oh, that's good, right? I mean, that's uh, that that uh, that that moves society. You know, your things are actually happening. But if you're doing like hedge funds and this moving futures and pork belly futures and, you know, it's just that nothing is happening. It's just like a, it's like a casino of some kind.
0: Well, the only only way that people like um, manipulate that in an unethical way is, is through like the power of a central authority to say that, oh, you can't lend to some people or you can't lend to, because otherwise, I mean, if there's just a completely free market, I mean, a bank would lend to whoever, you know, hey, you got a good idea? Well, if it's a good idea, I'll lend to you, you know? But, I mean, uh-huh. no one is, like, obligated to lend to someone, you know, just because, you know, they have to, right? It should all be, right. like, free. It it, it it should all be, like, a free decision to, like, do that. And, like, interest, you just charge interest because, well, why am I going to give you money, right? Like, like uh-huh. if, if if my, like, fucking brother or something or someone in my family is like, hey, I need money for blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'll give you money. But if I'm in an mm-hmm. organization and someone's like, oh, I want to borrow money from you, well, we need to know why. And we want, we want to make a good decision about where, whether we're going to get our money back.
1: Right. right? But so also like, that the they'll, they'll say, what's your...
0: America call? happened, like, in 2007, yeah. 2008, because the government intervened and said, no, give we're going to secure you, right, to make loans to people who don't deserve loans, right? Right. And so they made loans to people who, who had no, like, evidence that they're ever going to pay it back, and then they didn't pay it back, and then the whole system crashed as well, a result But they, yeah,
1: those poor people were sucked into, you know, my people saying, oh, yeah, you know, you can get a house, you can do this. It's like, yeah. they, you know, they, they didn't know, I mean, what was happening right. to them. But so they were, you know, it wasn't like they were... Sinister. It was the banks that was sinister. And then they'll right. also...
0: coercive force. There's a coercive right. force behind this, you know. And they'll take and they'll take the and reason... they want collateral. The only, the, government, the only reason the government can come in and say, oh, we're going to back you up is because we're coercively stealing money from millions mm-hmm. of Americans through their taxation. I mean, it's our, our tax is
1: paid for all of that bullshit,
0: you know. Mm-hmm.
1: So... Ultimately, yeah, and then they, it. They, get, they get collateral so that you have to put your property up to secure it or whatever. Then they're just going to confiscate that property yeah. when you can't pay. Now, a lot of times that, or not a lot of times, but sometimes it really backfires when you say, like, uh-oh, we got a whole city like Detroit. It's like, you know, we're just going to bulldoze these neighborhoods because, like, nobody wants these houses ever again, you know. Uh, yeah, so they can actually just. But most of the time, it's like, well, we're, we're safe. The bank's safe either way. We either get the money with all that interest, or we get the property. Yeah. You know. So. Yeah. Uh, it's all no, going to come
0: went, went way. back
1: to Papa. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, well, it's like one of the you know basic things in the you know the twenty-five points of the. You know, the Nazi party was like, uh, you know, two things was one, you know, the abolition of the bondage of interest. That was like written in capital, big capital letters. And then also the idea that's just saying, you know, the, you know, the, the common good before the individual good,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, and then who determines what the common good is? Well, of course, the party decides, you know, that's true. Of you know that's socialism, whether it's national socialism or Bolshevism or whatever. That's universal in socialism, right. and it's always who decides is going to be the you know the the, the in crowd, right? I mean yeah. the the party members, the government, whoever. I mean who whatever however that's defined. They there's going to be this Politburo. <laughs> you know these people. Yeah. Who are the the arbiters of that? And it's uh, people to say, "Well, why, why would I favor a socialist system?" who so, I always envision myself as being part of that in crowd.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. I mean, yeah. so I it's that's where the gangsterism comes in. I'm going to yeah. be in the catbird's seat, you know, and everybody else is going to be a rube.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And but but I'm never going to say that. Of course, I'm always going to be oh, equality and uh, whatever, you know, no, no, sort of moral government. platitudes. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: So Absolutely.
1: that that's really important to uh, to the co- uh, to the uh, manipulation is that uh, you seem to be you know like sons, Tzu, you know, say okay, you know, he's talking about a battlefield really, but uh, you know, you take the high ground, right? Meaning, getting on a hill and fight downhill, but you take that metaphorically and you say, like, well, you know, you always take the moral high ground, and then you're unassailable, right? Wow. I'm just for the I'm just for the little guy. I'm just for the you know, and uh, you know, oh, I can't. You know, stay with him. I mean, he's a good guy. He's a smart guy. Yeah, I'm helpless at this point. Uh, and you cede, you, you know, you concede the moral high ground to someone who is immoral. You are, you know, you're, you've lost the fight. Yeah.
0: You know? That's why. That's why Ayn Rand made a big point about um, to take the moral high ground based on individualism. That we need to like. Mm-hmm. Convince everyone that that individual is the moral high ground. Individual freedom is Mm -hmm. the moral high ground. Because as long as they can come back and say, oh, the common man and the suffering people,
1: they will always Mm -hmm.
0: win. They will always win the moral argument. Because the moral argument always ends with the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the needs of the one. And we need uh-huh. to, You have to be able. You will always like lose that arg- that lose that argument every time, until we can say that being an individual and standing for yourself, that is the moral high ground. You know, once we can make that the moral high ground, then maybe the individual will have a ch- a, a, a a chance against all of these collectivist systems that we yeah, collect- are just bombarded with constantly. You know.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But I mean, there's a lot of other people. Not to make, a, not to leave this all on a on a high grand point. But there's a lot of other people mm-hmm. who said basically the same thing, you know. Um, and and I consider Zarathustra said the same thing. That's what Zarathustra said is that the moral high ground is the individual, right? You know well, the the struggle for individualism, and that's what uh,
1: right. you
0: know. But you, what, know, you know, I mean, how that principle of isolated intelligence is. You know.
1: uh-huh. but but you know, we can see right in front of us, and it wouldn't take much to just note how uh, you know that that idea has been demonized already uh-huh. quite yeah. thoroughly. You know, oh, the 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 you know, this rugged individualism, you know, is just a just, oh, yeah. a, you know, that pass say that is we got to get rid of that. That you know, that's pretty much a evil. I mean, that sounds like toxic masculinity to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what do you think? A cow going all cowboy, blah blah blah. But yeah, you know, I mean, and, and and of course we have to concede. I mean, I mean, you know, when you're thinking logically, that that that, that there are, uh, you know, that that uh, individualism, uh, that there's got to be a balance, right? That that there's a, that uh, that to, uh, to, to to practice individualism, we have to take a page out of Thomas Jefferson's book and say, you know, you've got to be initiated while you've got to have a, uh, a system you know for the honest and
2: uh, intellectually honest
1: kind of notion of education not indoctrination but that you know lo- you know logic rational self-interest but there's a rational component to that right so that you don't just say you know otherwise you know like you see like unions oh unions are very bad but look, you know what was happening in the middle of the 19th century? I mean, people being sent down into mines, just you know, just whatever, just basically slaves being really, you know, exploited beyond all, you know, things. And so, well, that's you know, they 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 made their free choice, you know, to go down that hole for a dollar fifty a week. That's to the Fuck them, you know. That, mm-hmm. but you know, it can get pretty. Extreme, you know. I mean, if you let that individualism run amok, which I mean, we've seen it in our history, uh, that's that can be bad. Just like collectivism uh, run amok will will definitely be bad, also. Uh, so uh, that's where the idea of of a uh, culture which uh, honors, thought, education, uh, insight, and in how to be a, an individual, you know. If you're going to be a sovereign individual, there's a, like the, in the Middle Ages, whenever they would write these books, you know, the king's mirror, these ideas of how do I be, how can I be a sovereign how can I be a king in my life? You know, there's, a, there's a kind of mastery there that must be uh, pursued yeah. and uh, that that kind of thing being encouraged, but that's completely fallen by the... That's just crazy talk to most people today. Oh, yeah. The, so, I think that uh, happens...
0: I, I think that happens, like, naturally. Just, like, naturally... As a as a human being, I honored my 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 father and my mother, right? You know, mm-hmm. and like wanted to take care of my mother, like when she was like dying and stuff, and 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 and, and, and take care of my family, and the people right. that you know, my friends or whatever that I like connect with. Uh, getting back to the tribalism thing that you, that you talked about, I think that that naturally mm-hmm. arises the urge, the desire to do right. that is a part of individualism. I didn't have to have a hammer of co- a hammer of collectivism banged mm-hmm. onto me to to know that I needed. To, no, I just naturally did that as I am like like trying to uplift myself, you know, as a sovereign, trying to strive towards you know a, a sovereign existence. That you know, these are my families, my friends. I'm going to uplift them also, and I'm going to like watch out for mm-hmm. them. But I get to do it all freely, right? Right, like when, well, let's see when, uh, when another force comes in and says, "Oh no, you need to help these other people
1: who live right, on the other right, side right. of
0: the world you know'
1: mm-hmm. um, or just people you that. have no ide- identity with that is a, a tribalism mm-hmm. or whatever is like identity, solidarity, and uh, you know that those kinds of ideas but so so that for example, you see like in a family. You have like socialism. Like if you have, you need something and your parents have, say, have it and then they will give it to you, you know, and uh, help you out. And they, but you don't feel you feel grateful and you're not resentful but if somebody is, uh, you know, in a political thing wherein somebody like i'm a homeless person i'm a bum whatever it's oh here the government's going to give you this apartment well but you know what do people do almost immediately they trash it out right yeah. they don't take care of it they don't they, because they they they're resentful in the first place i mean it, it's just a psychological thing they have no identity with or respect for or interest in these uh the, you know, the givers because they're dis, they're alienated disassociated from them, they have no connection with them, and so it's not going to be what these is you know, oh are well, the homeless in our town, why don't we just give them homes so, you know well it's' just not going to work, but if your family does that then it's a totally different thing psychologically, and that's yeah. kind of ultimately what for example. Uh, you know, like with the idea of the appeal, as it originally was, of national socialism, you know, was this idea that we're all one people, right? We're all family, as it were. We're all, you know, fellow Germans in this case. And uh, so, you know, we all have socialism within the family. Uh, of course, all of that is just hooey and you know it's just a, another gangster you know, coming up with yeah. a great idea but in theory you see it starts to make sense As opposed to what they're doing in Russia right we're going to take care of our own our organic people that you know but that one means we're 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 deciding who is in and who's out and we're brutal you know with those people who are out it's kind of like the you know, La Rasa Unida the Mexican American group, you know, you know, for for the race, everything for others, nothing. Right, that attitude, uh, which is not good, not healthy, not you know, you know, it's just, it just goes down. Every all of these things go down the wrong path because the true path, the truth, is is something which is has to do with balance of complex things, and that's where. Mentality, intellect, spirituality—you know—it uh, 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 comes into play. You Cannot escape it. There is no, again, going back to Zervanism, where There's no mechanism. So this is the formula. Apply it. Everything will work. Everything yeah. will work fine. You know, it has to, comes down to the individual psyche of, the, of individuals to apply these things in a wise manner, and that is hard that you know uh, 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 abstinence from things oh that's bad I'm not going to do that this is always good I'm always going to do this rather having to actually practice uh, a balanced kind of way of discrimination between this is good this is a situation that is a constant uh, exercise in attention you know it's just the hardest thing in the world. So are you familiar
0: it, with the idea of tabu, tabula rasa?
1: A tabula rasa, uh-huh. Blank slate. Blank slate. Mm-hmm.
0: blank slate. Right, the idea that that a human is born with a blank slate. It's an idea that I think John Locke talked about it,
2: mm-hmm. but
0: it's become very popular, and, and I mean, this is the idea, in, in certainly in progressivism, um, What do you think about
1: that? Well, that can't be, you know. I mean, that's uh, uh, that—that's that, very, uh, you know, talking about mechanistic. That is that every everyone is the the same, and and uh, they are a result of their experiences. You know, if they're treated badly, it's not. I, I'm not a criminal. Uh, I'm not bad, society made me this way, right? And, of course, that was like their, their way of thinking was, yeah, and I believe that's true. That's what they would have said. And they so, said, so, therefore, we have to, you know, make society healthy and right and, you know, give people only positive and good input, and then we'll have a transformed society. But uh, how many times, you know, you say, well, this this kid, perfect parent, or two brothers, are, you know, and one is uh, raised by the same parents, et cetera. One of them's out robbing banks at twelve, and one of them's, you know, going to Harvard, whatever. I mean, it's, that there's something else going on there, you know. Yeah. But you know, like yeah. uh, those people, those rasa type people, which are you know very modernistic. Uh, thinking, you know, like when I was a King James or something, you know, had like a child, you know, newborn child, put them in a solitary world, and didn't allow them to speak, or you know, no one spoke to them. They kept them in there for years. Or was kid, this one kid, and then he said, and then we like, whoa, well, they were doing experiments to see what the original pure language was, and uh, so. You know, then the kid they go to him when he's like however old and of course he's just a babbling, raving idiot, you know, what I mean he's just complete insane. And he says, Oh, the child, he says he spoke perfect Hebrew. <laughs> you know, but they were like doing experiments on people, well, on the belief that, you know, Tom Morata, if you're just a blank slate then whatever you know well if you don't put any input in then you can see what the slate you know has to say purely you know just like from nature or something like that That'd I mean, crazy idea, but you know of course you're a, a human being as I was always say you know in my humanities classes, is a cultural animal you know we need input we are nothing as a species, we are helpless mentally, physically, all of us, nothing. We can't do anything as well as, as, as any animal except think. And to think, we have to be educated. And the more complicated the society in which you live, the more education, training, input you need from you know, more knowledgeable people. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, if if it look like a bunch of farmers, if they how you farm, kid, you know, by the time you're 12, you could be a farmer. Uh, but if you're living in our world, <laughs> you, there's a lot of stuff you got to learn about how to thrive in a society. You know, there's and a lot you
0: just... have to learn, but people come into the world already, I think, with. Um... With certain inclinations and stuff like that, like even like child psychology like like I mean tabula rasa has been like the the uh, you know
1: the 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 progressive
0: stance it, it justifies like you know public school as long as people fill <laughs> the world with a blank slate, the powers that be have a reason why we need to like take care of everything because oh if you don't educate people you know immediately. They're going to end up being, like, you know, radically, you know, they're, they're going to end up being criminals and whatnot. Um, but, I, I mean, to me, this is part, of, and it goes back to the Zoroastrian thing, too, that you start thinking about the existence before your life, right, that there's, like, because in, in the Western sense, we just want to talk about, I think Christianity kind of set this up, too, right, that it's like you come into the world by this miraculous thing and then all you really need to worry about is the future from here on out, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're going to leave this life, and then you're going to go on to another life. So you worry about everything from there. But you don't talk about right. where you came from. And the Zoroastrianism system starts talking about, oh, no, you made a decision already. Really? You made a really good decision, actually, a smart decision before you came here. So there's, you already came in with something. And, um, like, the, the latest, like, child psychology stuff is starting to talk about, you no, know, no, like, even babies have. You take, like, two, like, babies, you separate. No, they already have a proclivity for things. They're not, like, a, just a complete dumbass, you know, and then we just program them with whatever. Mm-hmm. They already come into the world with some, like, you know, some thoughts, some
1: perspectives. Right, for good, you know, just... Uh... And this all you have to, again, uh, say, well, here we have this person, and everyone is different, and everybody's got some kind of, uh, like you said, inclinations or uh, talents and all kinds of things. I mean, otherwise, how could you explain Mozart other than the eternal return? But, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, he was like, uh, like born, it's like, oh my God, he's composing symphonies at three. I mean, you know, why? his father didn't teach him all this stuff, because it would imply that his father knew all the things, and it was only, it's like a computer, it only knows what you put into it, right? So that's kind of what the tabula rasa would imply, whereas the... Uh, Truth is that uh, that individual is uh, whether a genius or a or, or a criminal or, or a terrible person, like you know the movie you've ever seen, that movie The Bad Seed. Yeah, yeah, you know, by the little girl, you know, it's just like a murderer, you know, a psychopath, a psychopath, right?
2: Yeah. These
1: these people don't. I mean, the same input could be given to two different people, and one of them, you know, is you know, Ed Gein or something, and the other one is just, you know, a little bit unhappy person, but, you know, that's uh, they're not doing these things. That's, that's, again, it's it's just, uh, the Tabula Ross idea was just a uh, a revolutionary or a uh, radical idea that was just an attractive concept for the time, you know, the Enlightenment period, but it, it doesn't hold water. There's a lot of ideas like that yeah yeah. uh, you know and there's some truth to the idea that you know everyone is within a range i mean there are some outliers and anomalies that are just whether they're mozarts or or you know psychopaths or whatever but most people are somewhere in the middle there you know and yeah you know education and and input and positive models of action and thought and everything are all going to make things better you know, and uh, so you know you can do, well, better or you know worse as far as that. But like you're saying, the pu- public schools and things like that are just kind of predicated on the idea. That's why, I like when I was uh, I was wanting to learn to to read, you know, when I was just a little kid before I went to school, and uh, but that's that kind of weird of that if you, you see that. History of the Rune guild and that picture of the taken from the newspaper with that occultation of Venus that I was talking about earlier. Uh, in that, you can see that I wrote my name like one of the letters is backwards. But I wrote the word the, the name Stevie. That's what they called me you know, when I was little, and uh, Stevie. And uh, but it's like I wrote my name for some weird reason. I mean, at that moment, I mean, in that piece, I wrote that on that. At the bottom of that picture, it was weird. But uh, I was wanting to learn to read, and my—I uh, remember the moment where my mother asked this first grade teacher wasn't didn't end up being my first grade teacher—but should we, try to, you know, teach him to read? And they said the teacher said, "Oh no, no, don't do that. You know, you've got to. You know, everybody's better if everybody starts off, you know, at the same." you know, thing, you know, at the same time. <laughs> of course, it's even better for them, you know. You know, when some smart ass in the class already knows what, you know, letters mean. But but that was just like, I remember that. I was probably, in you know, five years old. But it was like, oh, my God, I'm doomed. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: that's so funny. Yeah, you know, but
1: that would be typical, right, that that's just like, we want everybody going along just like the... You know, not too fast, not too slow, just everybody kind of go longer.
0: That's uh, interesting. So when I was in public school, like in the 70s, um, like my parents, like my father, he was like teaching me to read, like before I went to school, uh-huh. I knew how to spell some words before I went into school, and then when I got into first grade, I was like so good at it that they made me like a class helper, like a teacher made uh-huh. me uh, yeah, you you handled some of the other kids' questions, you know. <laughs> uh, isn't that funny? And then, but by, by the time I got into um, uh, junior high, um, it was like I was like basically I was singled out as like as like a punk, right, by the other students because I was too smart, right? Uh-huh, so right. Was like all of a sudden, I'm in trouble for that, right? it's like, basically, this is where you realize that public school is basically like prison, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. like punks and wolves and stuff like that, right? So I, I left off, like, I, I realized, oh, it's bad to, like, please the teachers. You got to displease the teachers, right, to survive in this context mm-hmm. kind of thing. And at that time, it's like they'd, like, they'd, like, dropped out. Like, when I first started, like, going to school, they had, like, a gifted program and stuff like that. And so I was, like, advanced into that. But then it disappeared for a while as I changed schools and there wasn't a gifted program anymore. And then um, by the end of high school, they had a gifted program again and they're getting a hold of me, but I never responded to them because I didn't want to get involved with that and singled out as being a punk, right? I didn't want to get attacked again while I was here. Right. So really this is all just a demonstration of how uh, inept how impossible it is to create a, a a government-run institution like that 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 suits the needs of everyone, you know, and educates everyone in an equal kind of way. Like even their standards of like what education means like changes
1: every few years. How can it possibly mm-hmm. be accurate, you know? Right, and they uh, yeah the the institute this the cult of stupidity. I I didn't see that too much but I mean I understood that uh, later on you know it became very pronounced you know whereas people would uh, hide their you know hide their they wouldn't be ashamed of S but they would be hide their A's you know what I mean yeah
0: yep.
2: <laughs> you hide your A's <laughs> <laughs> oh look I'm in <laughs>
1: oh very 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 proud of that <laughs> I don't care I don't care well that's 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 a cool guy right there you know (laughs) worthy of emulation (laughs) but it is like a call you know what I call a cult of stupidity uh, but any culture that spawns spawns that is like oh man that's you're in trouble it's like out here you know Texas you know rural areas especially but it, you know that like fathers will like oh I want their son to play football but you know if they start and you know, if they were in the chess club or whatever you know you, the father would be ashamed could never uh, just tell yeah. anybody at the garage you know that that's what his kids <laughs> doing you know but it's like no but if he's uh, the things that are good it'll actually benefit the person in the future Are shameful but you know getting his knee blown out in a football field you know that's like that's great yeah false hope and bodily injury that's that's the way to go (laughs) yeah so but that's like miss that's that's some kind of atavism you know from old like warrior societies right yeah so that uh, that's just kind of from that. But uh, we don't need that anymore. Yeah. Act so smart. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, right. been a good way. We, we started off and we went on and on. and It just, uh, you can't stop with all these interesting ideas. That's for sure.
0: I know it's brilliant. Thank you so much, Dr. Flowers, for coming on the show again. That's such a great conversation, and um, and uh, you know, keep keep fighting the good fight and writing mm-hmm. these awesome books and helping make the world a better place.
1: Well, I'll try. I uh, I know it probably won't get any. I just hope to leave something behind that can make an even better difference later on. Uh, yeah. Maybe the world will get better later. Yeah. We can always hope.
0: They always hope.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> hope burns a turn.
1: Yeah, it does. <laughs> okay, right. well that's uh I thank you for your uh you know, stimulating questions and uh, opportunities to uh to uh express my stuff here.
0: Excellent. That's it for that part. Okay. <laughs>
1: the org <laughs> words.
0: All right. We'll talk to you again. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Cool. Bye bye. Bye.